I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days and Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you as ever by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements and cities around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland. And in this, our very first Patreon-nominated episode, we'll be talking about Western Sahara a disputed territory in northwest Africa. Home to roughly 550,000 people and bordered by Morocco to the north, Algeria to the east, Mauritania to the south and the Atlantic Ocean to the west, Western Sahara is partially controlled by the self-proclaimed Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic and partially Moroccan occupied. It is often called Africa's last colony. First colonized by Spain in 1885, the territory's sovereignty has been fiercely disputed for decades particularly since 1975 when Spain officially relinquished its claim over the region. Today it is alternately known as Morocco's Southern Provinces or the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. However, we'll be referring to the region as Western Sahara throughout most of this episode. At roughly 260,000 square kilometers or 100,000 square miles, Western Sahara is about the size of the US state of Colorado or just slightly larger than the UK. The territory consists mostly of uninhabitable desert, and nearly 40% of its inhabitants live in Leyun, the largest city in Western Sahara, while up to 100,000 people from the region are currently living in refugee camps in neighboring Algeria. Alright, before we start out, we should thank uh, Eric Tapest, who is one of our uh, Patreon backers, uh, has, has faithfully, faithfully backed the podcast on uh, across this season, and uh, we thank him for his support, as well as all of our Patreon backers. Uh, this episode, the last episode of Season 3, was uh, nominated by Eric and was voted on by our Patreon backers as uh, our season finale episode, so... This is uh, the first episode that we've chosen since we've been doing this whole Patreon thing where uh, a, an episode has come directly from our audience. So, Democracy mm-hmm. in action. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. Th- th- there were some other exciting uh, options, but they'll just have to wait till, uh, till season four. There Guys, were, I'm just saying there respect were, there the referendum, greats. you know, just respect yeah. that referendum. Yeah. Uh, the result came out. Uh, <laughs> he's our president now and Brexit is uh, Britain back British. So it's all, and it's as all we'll learn, out. As we learn in this episode, <laughs> referenda... You know, you should be happy when they happen. That's that's uh, yeah, that's a very good point, actually. Yeah, appreciate um, the referendums you got, not the referendums you want. So the choice of this episode is much yeah. more democratic oh, than the the country in question. Uh, we should also do what we've been doing for most of this season and um, foreshadow some things that uh, listeners can look forward to hearing about in this episode. So, Joe, do you want to kick off? What are, what are you looking forward to talking about today? I, I'm looking forward to. Like we've never looked at a desert before, and it's amazing how much can happen True, in a yeah. place that we usually just write off as a as a wasteland. I mean, 
there's there's a lot of people living here and they've had a lot of influence on on the region around them uh, over the course of the centuries. So that's going to be um, a surprise to learn about. All right. And Mark, what about you? Um, I would say uh, the thing I'm interested to talk about uh, with a, a healthy sense of trepidation is uh, what I would term possibly the worst reaction to a court case going against you. Uh, this is way worse than like vaulting the uh vaulting the uh the, the wooden barrier and shouting at the judge we're total next level in terms of reaction here so i, I guess i'm i'm I, you know in a way i'm looking forward to talking about that yeah on a i guess on a on a slightly related note uh for me i'm looking at uh talking about a 1700 mile long wall uh that most people probably have never heard of uh, but which yeah. a certain U.S. president would probably be pretty envious of, and actually he <laughs> uh, mentioned it in a in a recent interview, uh, or in, 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 in a recent conversation with a Spanish official, apparently. Uh, oh. so we'll we'll get to that. Oh, um, yeah, we'll okay. get to that later. But it's uh, yeah, that's that's certainly an an interesting topic if if a if a fairly bleak one. That puts us in an interesting situation where where Donald Trump knows about our obscure location for a change. No, he. Mm, well, we'll see. He actually. Okay. That's a great one. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you later. Okay. <laughs> uh, Mark, I believe you also did an interview for us in this episode. Is that right? I I did on uh, some some frosty Saturday morning. Um, as as anyone who's tried to formally educate me will will attest, and as as you're all about to find out, I'm an extraordinarily lazy person. And after we uh, sort of divided up the sections, and uh, I decided I'd be taking on some of the early history, uh, I was looking into archaeology in Western Sahara, and for the most part, the kind of glib answer I got from the internet was, um, I don't know, it's it's pretty hot. We we didn't go, we didn't check anything out There's until sand. I. <laughs> Essentially, yes. Uh, it's the Sahara. What do you want? It's very, very dry. Um, and that was until I found the work of one uh, Nick Brooks uh, of the University of uh, East Anglia. He is in the School of World Art Studies and Museology Emeritus. Uh, but um, his background is, is more so in, in geomorphology. Um, mm. and, but he, he collaborated with uh, archaeologists and has done an enormous amount of work in the area and is uh, very well-versed and well-educated in all sorts of topics. I had a very enjoyable conversation with him um, about this, and you'll, you'll be hearing uh, little sections of that uh, throughout. But with regards to early history, all the work I could find was essentially his work. So I figured it would be best to just kind of let him talk about his work uh, rather than me, you know, just making stuff just up. straight as to I'm the source. To do. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, so I, I I thank Nick for his time and for uh, enabling my intellectual sloth that I I've managed to keep going all these years. Yeah, thanks very much to Nick for uh, speaking to us. And for anyone who's curious, Nick and his colleague at the University of East Anglia, Joanne Clark, have just released a book on the topic entitled "The Archaeology of Western Sahara," which you can find via your favorite search engine. And I think we'll we'll make that full interview available to our Patreon backers because I think it is. You know, we can only include so much in this episode, but it was a really all-encompassing interview of his his uh, his views on the you know visiting this place and also the archaeology. So very much all killer, no filler. It was yeah. uh, it was a really good interview. Yeah. So we'll we'll be dropping uh, bits of that interview where they seem relevant uh, mm-hmm. into today's episode. So if you hear a voice that's not one of the three of us, that's that will be Nick. Yes. But yeah, Mark, do you want to kick police. us off with some early Check history? Locks. 
Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, well, as I say, uh, I decided to ask an archaeologist, as we all, all do sometimes in our lives. Um, and, you know, after our intros and so on, one of the things I asked Nick was how long the area had been inhabited for as, as far as he knew. One of the difficulties we found in Western Sahara is that there's um, certainly in the areas that we worked in, there's not yeah. an awful lot of uh, potential for sort of firm, you know, radiometric dating, scientific dating. Um, but what we can say is that you have all of the sort of spectrum of Paleolithic technologies pretty much in Western Sahara. So right. we're certainly talking about many hundreds of thousands of years ago and probably a lot earlier. Um, it seems increasingly that Sahara did play a key role in sort of these early human migrations and dispersals uh, and it was certainly occupied by uh, you know our predecessors far far beyond uh, you know a long time before homo sapiens uh, was around so so the history of human occupation dates back um, incredibly early uh, to some of the earliest uh, uh, human species as it were our project um, focused mostly on the period we call the holocene which is since the last 10,000 years now this is a period that's of particular interest in the sahara because it, it encompasses the phase after the end of the last ice age where the Sahara became wet and green. And so between about 10,000, 5,000 years ago, it was a, a much more hospitable place than it is today. Around about 5,000 years ago, um, that all collapses and essentially it turns into a desert. Now that happens very rapidly in some places and it doesn't happen all at once. Uh, in other places, it remains wetter for longer. So I also asked Nick that, um, you know, given all the findings that he, he, he made, and there's quite a lot of uh, uh, visual evidence on his website, I'd recommend you check that out. Um, but what did this tell him about the lifestyles of the people that lived in Western Sahara? Certainly up until probably about 6,000 years ago, maybe quite a bit later in Western Sahara, um, okay. you had people living there as hunters and gatherers. Across the Sahara, you have a lot of evidence of human occupation. A lot of this is in the form of, um, you know, rock art for example so you have paintings and engravings of the large uh, mammals that you find in the wetter parts of africa today uh, elephants yeah. crocodiles hippos and the like um, and these are there in abundance in western sahara the other thing you see a lot in the rock art is is cows um, and certainly you see this in western sahara as well and, and our current understanding of the spread of you know cattle herding through the sahara is that it basically starts in the east and spreads west as the desert sort of becomes drier so it's an adaptation to uh, drier conditions. Previously, people can sort of hang around, be relatively sedentary, and take what they want from the environment and, and have, a, yeah. have a nice time and do lots of lovely rock paintings and stuff. When it starts to dry out, um, around about 6,000 years ago, a little bit before in some places, after in others, then increasingly people turn to cattle herding because they can basically take their food stocks with them in terms of you know mm. the cattle, but more importantly, the, the milk and probably blood. So they move around looking for pasture uh, that comes after the more and more erratic rainfall. And eventually they got to Western Sahara. We're not quite sure precisely when that happened, but we do know that it was wet um, certainly up until about four and a half thousand years ago and probably quite a lot later in places. So I also asked Nick, I mean, specifically, what were the kinds of archeological finds he, he came across and, and whether he had any, uh, you know, information around changes in climate over the, over the centuries in, in that region. So once the cattle herders move in, you see a change, obviously, in the rock art there. But also you get the spread of essentially megalithic monuments, burial monuments. These are yeah. these like little conical tumuli, but also much sort of more complicated and, and fancy sort of forms. Large crescent shapes, tumuli with big wings sticking out of them and so on. And there's an awful lot of this in Western Sahara. So what, what we think and what we think from our um, work there is that 
Western Sahara stayed wetter for longer than other parts of the Sahara, and so act as a sort of refuge. So you get an explosion of different sort of styles of funerary monuments, as it were, a lot of which you don't see in other parts of the Sahara. So it suggests that once you, they get into Western Sahara, they start innovating and doing things differently. And we did excavate a couple of these burial monuments, and they wow. dated really late um, until, well, so one of them was dated to about 1,500 years ago. Yeah. Now, these monuments start in, in the central Sahara um, around about six and a half to 7,000 years ago. So probably what was happening is that, you know, people moved there as the rest of the desert dried out, um, yeah. and they, uh, you know, maintained their cattle herding lifestyles, a bit of hunting and gathering, um, and they... You know, developed these these quite sort of sophisticated uh, funerary practices that are now reflected in a lot of the archaeology that's left there today. Um, so Nick there was talking about some of the the funerary sites and some of the stuff he, he saw in his work. He he has a a pretty illustrative website, and you can see from the the pictures that he's included um, how obviously man made these things are. Um, at the same time, they they are configurations of uh of stones essentially so you know some of them are, are you know piled some of them are in line some of them are in kind of organized curves but uh it, it is quite obvious that they are man-made structures something that is, is probably to me even more uh shocking potentially is is the uh the detail in the stone paintings um the stone carvings as well as you know uh, things that, that that nick uh, directly referred to like cattle and so on you, you see uh, giraffe, fish, elephants, even like a kind of an antelope springbok style animal as well. Uh, it's really, uh, it's, it's, it's really amazing stuff actually. But it, it totally ch tells you of the kind of the, the changes in climate and, but also I guess the, uh, how people were moving around. So would have had uh, seen things from other areas of, of, of uh, and, and so as well. what he's saying is like, these are pictures of the animals that lived here when it was green. Essentially, yeah, or or at the very, I mean, at the very least, you can say that the people that were moving around, you know, also went to other areas and were like, mm. "Hey, remember that elephant? I think I'll draw an elephant." You know, that that's also, I guess, possible. But they mm. were sufficiently close to those areas that you know, you can see that the climate was was fundamentally different. Yeah, it's it's just hard to imagine the uh, the Sahara blossoming. I remember hearing a thing about uh, yeah. archaeology done in in Trafalgar Square in London, and they found re remains of old hippos. Hippos oh. and lions. Uh, the, just the climate was different. Different mm -hmm. kinds of animals. Um, so that's the that's my interview with, with with Nick. Apart from that, just some some cultures that were known to be in this general vicinity. As we will see, it was kind of difficult for us at some some points to say you know what was relevant to Morocco as an area, what was relevant to Western Sahara as an area. Uh, we will touch off aspects of Moroccan culture, but just to mention quickly that. Um, in general, the earliest people thought to be in the area were known as the Bafour people, uh, who were, according to their own oral history, based in Western Sahara with a strong agricultural tradition, which lines up with the cattle and so on. They they then moved southwards and apparently were both split into subgroups and then also amalgamated with other groups. Even up to the last few hundred years, I saw some reference to some of their some of the um, Bafour people being progenitors of those in, in Gambia. Uh, okay. and, and similar similar area that they, they move south down to there um but for all intents and purposes the Bafour people are no longer a, a going concern as i understand it uh one other thing to mention is that there was a reference to people in this general neck of the woods as it were referred to as the gaituli people referred to by the romans 
who may have had some activities yeah. in kind of southern Morocco, Western Sahara area. The, the Romans were alternatively fighting with these people and allied with them at various points in their history. Oh, um, Rome. The, the Romans viewed them as rude, uh, mainly because the Gaetuli had never heard of them <laughs> when they turned up. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, from, what I can, from what I can see, they were more so, uh, you know, most of the activity was, was more so Moroccan. So I'm not sure really how much relevance they had. Mm -hmm. uh, and even at that point, even 2000 years ago, the Western Sahara area was already pretty inhospitable. So uh, the Romans may not have seen that as uh, any grand prize to, to, to go for. But that, 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 that's yeah, it as far enough. as early history goes. Cool. But of course, there are some grand prizes available to those who choose to support us on Patreon. As we said at the top of the show, this episode was nominated and voted for by our supporters on patreon.com slash 80 days podcast and you could join them next season and help us get season four on the road if you're enjoying the podcast so far why not pop over and see what awards we have available for those who sponsor us and uh, find one that suits you enjoy the rest of the show joe do you want to talk us through the uh, arrival of islam obviously a uh... A huge event in the history of this this region yeah yeah so i mean things kind of start to get interesting and much more you know written down kind of nagging my section there joe kind of give it a good old nag <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is where things really get interesting <laughs> things really get interesting with, with the era of the islamic expansion into north africa uh s side note i never knew what the word maghreb meant you know that term you hear to refer to sort of Algeria, Morocco. Yeah. So it just means West in Arabic. Oh, right. Okay. Fair so okay. this was the, the Western bit of the Arab world. And um, it's impossible to talk about the history of Western Sahara without talking about bits of Moroccan and Mauritanian history because th th these countries weren't countries yet. You know. Yeah, there's, so there's going to be an awful lot of, of yeah in later sections as well. I mean, my section too is going to be a lot of uh, Moroccan and Mauritanian history is going to bleed into them because yeah, uh, yeah, it's, you just can't talk about the area in isolation. It's all about which tribe and which warlord had the most influence over this area at a given time. But they were sometimes from mm -hmm. here; they were sometimes from elsewhere. One interesting point I saw made about about Western Sahara specifically is that the people who were inhabiting this area around the 7th, 8th century when, when the the Muslim conquest of, of the Maghreb was happening, they were mostly uh, what are called Berber people, who is probably a word you've heard in, in reference to, I mean, maybe you've heard it in terms of uh, the Moroccan population or in terms of the, the reconquest of Spain or, or some, that kind of history. But um, it comes from the Egyptian word for just a foreigner. Ah. Oh, and okay. the Greeks stole the word and turned it into barbarian for much the same purpose. Right. Ah, those who are right. not civilized like us, you know. So the Berbers were the the huge cultural group of of, of uh, mostly nomadic tribes that lived in the expanses of the Sahara, and they were focused around oases and rivers, and uh, controlled a lot of the trade across the desert by using camels and so on. And so uh, an important point I saw made was that the, in the initial expansion of Islam, it wasn't that Arabs conquered Western Sahara. Uh, there was minimal interest. Um, Arabs were mostly based in the cities in, in Morocco and Spain. 
I mean, again, we've we've mentioned previously, but we, it, it bears repeating, I guess, is that like you know, from a satellite photo or whatever, we'll right. include one in the in the in the show notes. It's it's, it's just sand. It's yeah. all sand. <laughs> yeah, so it kind of makes sense. Yeah. So the Arabs didn't conquer it, but the culture spread out when different Berber tribes converted to Islam for the cultural prestige or because they had so the appeal of monotheism uh, for whatever reason they spread this new religion further south into the desert and people adopted it at least superficially maybe continuing to mix it with their animistic religions for a while but it was kind of a, a slow process of, of Arabization where the Berber people themselves shifted their culture so there's a few a few uh, important things start to happen. Like in 745, a series of wells were built along the route from uh, Sigilmassa in southern Morocco to Audagost in modern-day Mauritania by the governor of Ifriqiya. Uh, so this starts to kind of formalise a trade route through the Western Sahara and shows that this was being used for basically the trade of um, gold and slaves principally from from Senegal and the Gambia into the Arab world. Yay! Yeah, we've mentioned that in a couple of previous episodes as well. Yes, I think we have. Yeah, that yeah. that uh, the Arab slave trade in the pre-European colonization era was very significant, and uh, mm-hmm. and um, eventually was dwarfed by by oh know, yes the slave trade. But but yeah, this is significant at the time. Yeah, uh, getting more specific in the, in the ninth century, there was a series of kind of Berber confederations of tribes which controlled the oases around the Sahara, uh, particularly the Sanhaja and the, the Zanata Confederation. And some of the important groups were, uh, in particular, the, the Jadala along the Atlantic coast and the Lemtuna, who were kind of further south below the Anti-Atlas Mountains in sort of northern Mauritania today, southern western Sahara. So those are two, two names to remember. It's hard to specifically say what happened within western Sahara and what didn't, but... Let's not worry too much about it. Uh, they were always in flux between various empires. So in and around Morocco, you have the Idrisids and then the Fatimids. Idrisids, the Umayyads. Yeah. The various Muslim rulers of either Marrakesh or Fez or, or some of the other cities in, in modern-day Morocco. And then you also had the Songhai Empire in around Timbuktu and Mali exerting influence. So trade between those two and wars between those two big blocks obviously pushed people around in the desert uh, and tribes moved around as the political situation changed. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's sorry to interrupt, but like, just the, yeah. the point you make there is like, well, the people moved around as the political situation changed. No, people ran for their goddamn lives. Like, crazy stuff was happening. <laughs> people were shooting each other with, you know, I guess, you know, people were stabbing each other. Just merely stabbing, uh, you know, organ- organized stabbing via war. And they were running around, mm. getting killed, as people always have. But we just kind of look at it with a kind of a, well, there was a political turmoil in these days. <laughs> You know, people were mincing each other into flipping yes. snibbins. Like it was Be- being nomadic made sense exactly. in this context. All the easier to run away from you, uh, Mr. Wolf. Yeah, probably the the most significance West Western Sahara and, and this region had on on Moroccan history was around about the turn of the first millennium, around about a thousand. There was an emir called Tarsina, and he founded this big new confederation 
from those tribes I mentioned earlier, uh, the Lemtuna, who were being pushed out of out of Mauritania by the expansion of, of African empires, and then the Chadala uh, kind of joined into into a union. Uh, he he was killed soon after, but his son, a Chadala chief called Yahya Ibn Ibrahim. Oh, what a name. Uh, that is cool. Yep. <laughs> he proved to be very important. So Yahya went on the Hajj to Mecca because he was a Muslim and it was his duty to go off to see the holy sites. But on his way back, he, he stopped off in Cairo. As you do. And wanted to sort of study a bit more and perfect his knowledge of Islam. And the teachers there basically just told him he was, he, he was very heretical and very <laughs> ill-informed and very, uh, you know, because he was practicing a sort of a syncretic bear-bear Islam where they okay. still did some old-fashioned superstitious things that weren't au fait right. with, the, with the Arab um, view of what Islam should be. And he was convinced he wasn't doing so well in his wars because God was unhappy with him. And so he wanted to, you know, get a proper teacher to come and educate his people and put them on a straight and narrow. Great. Uh, no one in Cairo was willing to go with him. So he was sent to Sajal Massa, that, uh, that city in southern Morocco that uh, I mentioned earlier uh, being on the trade route. And here there was a, a Ribat, which is a religious fortress. Uh, and you, the current capital of Morocco is called Rabat, which comes from the same okay. oh, the same word. Like a, like a fighty monastery? Exactly, a fighty monastery. Um, and here he picked up the, the, he, here he picked up a teacher, a guy called uh, Abdallah ibn Yasin. So the the leader of the Rabat said, this guy will come with you and he'll teach you the correct way to follow Maliki uh, Sunni Islam. So that's the the kind of Islam that's still popular there to this day, right. to the best of my knowledge. Okay. Um, and yeah, so he, he comes down to, to the tribes in, in the in the desert and uh, puts them kind of on a path of orthodox Sunniism. And uh, not everyone appreciates that. <laughs> This is really familiar. <laughs> this is, oh, this is very familiar. Where, where is it reminding you of? Oh, about half of the Arab world, <laughs> fundamentalist Sunni preachers. <laughs> that's kind of been, that's been a, a tone yep. for a while. In, you know, Afghanistan, for example, they were very mm. keen on that. A lot of, lot of uh, mm-hmm. Arab fighters went into <laughs> well, the 80s and 90s. <laughs> subsequently. It, it, you'll be relieved to know it does get a bit carried away. Uh, so the great. many of the Jadala didn't like these strict teachings and there was a bit of a revolt so Ibn Yasin the, the religious leader had to withdraw with his followers and <laughs> then withdraw made an alliance with, by which you mean run for their lives so they wouldn't get yep. chopped into bits yes. go, go on exactly you don't want to sanitize yeah, history way too hardcore for me I'm out of here <laughs> exactly. like he, I know he, I brought this guy in here but but he's he's crazy he is crazy. yep and so um, yeah Ibn Yasin formed this uh, a stronger alliance with the leader of the other tribe, the Lamtuna tribe, uh, and their leader Yahya Ibn Umar, different Yahya. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, um, but we're not going to mention the previous Yahya again, so it's okay. And they managed to quell the rebellion, and then Ibn Yasin becomes the spiritual leader of uh, a group called the Al Moravid Alliance, which again I've comes from that word ribat. Yeah. Uh, that means you know Al Murabitin, the people of the Ribat, the the fighty monastery. Oh right. Okay. okay. And the Al became a dynasty in, in Morocco. That like 
they conquered left, right and centre all around them, sweeping out of the desert with religious purity and, and zeal. Mm. Um, Delicious zeal. They... That's veal. I'm sorry, uh, I think of veal. Sorry, I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, with veal. <laughs> so right, Ibn, Ibn Yasin was the spiritual leader and Ibn Umar was the military commander. In 1054, they conquered Sijil Massa, uh, which had been ruled by a different, less less zealous tribe. I don't know. <laughs> Not enough zeal. Um, that's your problem, boys. And <laughs> Too much Ibn veal. Ibn introduced his orthodox rule, banning music and wine banning non-Islamic taxes and uh, and giving one-fifth of the spoils of war to religious experts. So all, all yeah. reasonable stuff there. And they conquered huge amounts of Mauritania, Morocco, and even uh, Al-Andalus in Spain was wow. later conquered by one of the later leaders. So in, in 1055, both Ibn Umar and Ibn Yasin end up dead through various assassinations and, and battles. And then the... the, the, the Final big change to come in this kind of Islamification of the region was uh, the Almoravids' fall to the Almohads, who were, I think, Shia. Oh. And then Arab tribes were sent out from Egypt to try and put them down oh. again. So they were the, the Banu Hilal, and the, the ones who are important to Western Sahara are the, the warrior tribe, the Makil warrior tribes who were originally Yemeni Bedouins. Oh. So they come a long way. Maybe. Uh, to to reconquer Morocco f- for kind of, Yemen. to bring it back under the Egyptian Holy sphere of influence. Flip. Yep. And yeah. very few people originally, very few individuals would have come uh, in this kind of military migration. But the, the, the Beni Hassan were super important. They were pushed by the Almohads into Western Sahara, into the desert, because they were losing that battle. And they basically came to dominate the indigenous Sanhaja Berber people. Um, wow. The, their version of Arabic, uh, so Beni Hassan Arabic, is now the dominant dialect of Arabic spoken in Western Sahara. Oh. Okay. Uh, and they implemented this kind of, almost like a caste system, where basically the Arab tribes were on, on top of the pile and the Berber tribes are next. So say, for instance, the Ulad Delim, uh, Hassan warrior tribe, they ruled over much of this region. And then the Berbers were kind of second-class citizens. If they converted properly, they, they would attain more rights. But usually they were either as a Wiya tribe, which is a religious tribe that does religious work, or as a Naga tribe, which does fishing and farming and more menial work. And these tribes all had uh, sub-Saharan African slaves as part of them, uh, to a degree that surprised me. But over time, these peoples mixed together, and you get what are called the Moorish people in Morocco, or Sahrawi peoples in, in Western Sahara. And because the identity is kind of, like, they're referred to as Arabized Berbers rather than Arabs. So a lot of them claim a descent from from the prophet or from mm. uh, early religious figures in Islam. Yes. But they are mostly indigenous to the area, uh, genetically. And so people's identity between being Arab or Berber could shift as their political situation shifted. And the biggest tribe in the Sahrawi today are the Regwebat tribe. And they were a Berber religious tribe and then became a warrior tribe and adopted more 
Arab culture and Arab history into their their vision of themselves as that happened. Oh. So yeah, that that kind of sets the scene for for um, I mean the, the, we're still a couple of centuries away from colonialism, but but all that's really happening in that time is trade is continuing north and south of gold and slaves and salt moving southwards, and the Arab tribe, the now Arabized tribes in this region, demanding tribute to not attack caravans. Um, Right. Through the various dynasties that rule Morocco, they all kind of claimed to control this region, but whether or not they did depended very much on the particular sultan and whether the chieftains in the desert were loyal to that sultan. Right. It wasn't a... You Essentially, know, the chieftains in the desert... Yeah, there was never, rulers, as far as I read, there was never any direct control. It was just kind of no. like a, a tribute system, sort of. Oh, like I'm Exactly, which was how empires were. sultan or that sultan. Or, yeah, yeah. Um... The Sadians are enormously good value in terms of crazy stories, as it turns out. Uh, I, uh, I found a, a really good blog, uh, Slings and Arrows, um, which, uh, with a, a great posting on this. But I, I, I've boiled this down to just a, a, few, a few paragraphs, a few lines. Um, so they initially came from the south of Morocco, which might be why they had that kind of southern focus you were talking about, Joe. Mm. Um, but uh, the first Saudi leader was really just, he was kind of a local tough guy uh, who was wedged into power because the Portuguese needed a leader to negotiate with. Um, yeah. He wasn't really, yeah. you know. And they were floating around in this period. The Spanish and Portuguese had interests in the area like the Canary Islands. Oh, yeah. And, and we're, we're, we're in the 1500s yeah, at this yeah, point. Yeah. So we're, we're, yeah. we're well into the kind of semi-colonial looking period. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the top guy died. And his, in 1517, his son, who was called Mohammed uh, Ash-Sheikh, he took the ball and ran with it, and he took over Marrakesh. And uh, in seven in seven years, he uh, sorry, I, I made I had a whole thing about the Marrakesh Express. This whole metaphor, I, I most of my writing is, is pertaining to that. So I decided not to go through with it. So uh, I have to retranslate it back into English. Anyway, uh, <laughs> there was the Marrakesh Express. He was Marrakesh. Uh, the ETA of the Marrakesh Express was seven years. That's how long it took him to anyway. Uh, in 1524, Marrakesh is marooned by the the Saudi guys, and they are recognised by the, the the essentially the the top the top fellows top chaps in Fez as ruling their local area. In 1541, mm. they also took Agadir, and in 1549, took Fez itself. And from then on, they were you know they were the top knobs. Um, Muhammad Ash Sheikh, as you mentioned, Joe, he's one of these guys who said that he he descended from the prophet through the uh, Fatimid mm-hmm. line. Uh, he therefore did not recognize the Ottomans uh, and thought that was all rubbish and refused to acknowledge the Sultan in Constantinople. Be- because he was a he was a Turk, not an Arab. That, that was that was that was the vibe. Um, yeah, then his bodyguards yeah. killed him. Uh, <laughs> so, oh. no, that's the end of him. Wow. His grandson ended up getting deposed by his uncle. Uh, and then he went off and sought the, the help of the king of Portugal. The, the king of hmm. Portugal seemed really keen on this idea and was himself very young. Uh, and he invaded the area with 20,000 Portuguese troops and mercenaries. Right. Uh, then he was very much murdered, well, murdered, killed in battle. Uh, same thing. Uh, in a foreign land. Uh, Al-Mansur it was a guy who was one of those angry uncles I men- mentioned. Uh, and he he captured all of the Europeans that had come over and held them all to ransom. And he made Ooh. mad stacks out of that. 
And that's why some of the most beautiful monuments uh, in Marrakesh are still there is because he, he built them with this money. Some of the palaces are still there today. Right. Uh, last mention, this uh, Al-Mansur guy, who is a, a very good fighting man, he, uh, he marched his cannons across the desert for 135 days and he beat the Songhai Empire, who we've, we've referred to before. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, long, so, oh, long yeah. way. This was wow. the Timbuktu-based empire. Exactly. Um, the, apparently, the Songhai tried to disrupt his, uh, his, his battle lines by stampeding cattle at him. They were like, that go, be, cattle! So, and I think it was like a lot of cattle. It was like hundreds, thousands of cattle. Uh, the Moroccans wow. uh, then used their cannons to scare the cattle back in the other direction. Who <laughs> then swamped the guys, the sun guys, and they uh, they won the whole the whole dang thing. Uh, he yeah. eventually died in 1603 and was replaced by two sons who just civil warred the whole area into oblivion and lost all yeah. all the stuff they built up. But uh, the Saudis are are pretty good value for crazy stuff happening. It seems. You know, we don't have time to dwell on it, but uh, th- th- this is more or less like the read. The- Spain and Portugal haven't been Christian for very long at this stage. Oh, true. Yes, absolutely. So it's kind of, it might sound a bit strange to us to think of this close relationship between Spain and Portugal, but the Muslims had been ruling Iberia for many centuries. And only recently had they been driven out back into Morocco. And of course, many of the people stayed behind, just the leaders were replaced. Yeah. So it's, it's not that weird, like to think of that intimate relationship between dynasties i think it was the previous dynasty or one of the previous dynasties that kind of lost control of al-andalus but now the spanish were as i say in the canary islands which are just off the coast of western Sahara. so they're in the mix when the alawite dynasty the current dynasty in morocco come to power yeah it's i think it's i think it's high time that we took a break so we'll take a quick break here and then um yeah we'll we'll come back with colonialism yay have now reached the point in the podcast where a big bad colonial power pokes his head up above the parapet and is like hey you guys have got stuff here you know we like stuff <laughs> can we have some of Europe, your stuff we like stuff like, <laughs> but 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 it, you know for once it's not it's not the british for once it's not the british that's that's true who make i think zero appearances in this in this episode Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, they were very busy in Egypt at this time. So mm, uh, kind of had, had their yeah, North African their quota. Yeah. Um, so the Aliwa dynasty, which uh, we mentioned previously, came to power in 1659, has kind of exercised some level of sovereignty over what we call Western Sahara today. Uh, but mm. there was a very slow collapse of authority uh, throughout the 19th century which again is 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 one of those things that's disputed today uh as to what extent or what measure of power the Aliwa dynasty had over this region but mm-hmm. yeah throughout the early 1800s there was honestly not a lot happening in the region uh from what i read it's it's largely occupied by nomadic 
Saharan Arab tribes, which you talked about, Joe. Exactly. Uh, who and we, we should probably way, just flag uh, in case we haven't said it explicitly, because uh, we keep sort of hinting at it. The, the modern day dispute is about whether this should be Morocco or if it should be independent. And so, yes, correct. All yeah, through the history, that. we're looking for hints of Morocco's claim. How that influential they... was Morocco here? Yeah. But, but I guess yeah. it's, it's not just us as well. I mean, you know, there, there's also, I would say, an argument that a lot of the history work that has been done is, is, is often on one side of that. Morocco has a firm claim on the re- or Morocco has zero claim on the, you know, like it's, it's, you know, we're, we're dealing with, uh, to some greater or less degree, a, a modern author of all the stuff we're reading to some extent, you know, so, so that, that's always there. Yes. Yes. Yeah, true. Of course. Of course. But just to let the listeners be aware of, of that context oh, yeah. as we're looking back. It's, it's a, it's still yep. a thing. This, this whole thing is still a thing. But yeah, it was mostly occupied by uh, Arab tribes who made their living through trade, uh, slave trade as well, uh, camel herding, fishing, uh, as you said, Joe, and, and just, um, you know, transporting salt and this, this sort of thing. Uh, there is an interesting book, actually, which completely unrelated, like I, I read it at the beginning of this year, I think, uh, which was, uh, if, if you're interested in this region and if this episode kind of piques your interest, there's a, a quite a interesting historic tale that takes place in this region in 1815 there was a, a ship called the commerce which was wrecked off the coast of western sahara okay hmm. uh it was an american merchant ship and 12 of the crew survived and were were kind of wrecked off the rocks uh, on the coast of uh, cape boador and they essentially were attacked by the natives and then uh, taken into slavery okay. and sort of split up and, and traveled all over uh, western sahara I won't give away necessarily what happens in the story, uh, but you know some of them do survive to tell the tale. Not all of them. <laughs> oh, okay. Cap- yeah, Captain James Riley. He was the captain of the of the commerce, and he wrote a he memoir Irish. about his. I think he does have some Irish ancestry, if I remember from the book. Again, it's it's quite a, a while since like I read it, but yeah, um, yeah. He be- he was one of the survivors, uh, and he became a committed abolitionist upon his return to. The United States and his original memoir which was uh, written you know right after his experiences is quoted by Abraham Lincoln as one of the six most influential books he read in his youth Jeez. and hmm. seemingly um, informed his his views on slavery because this guy obviously Captain Riley one. he recounts his experiences as a slave yeah uh, to to people in uh, to some of the tribes in Western Sahara uh, hmm. And the the modern book that I read, I think it was written in 2012, is called Skeletons on the Zahara, uh, Zahara spelled with a Z, and it's uh, by a guy called Dean King. So I'd, I'd recommend that if uh, if anybody's cool. interested, in, uh, like I say, awesome. hearing more about this this period. But yeah, basically, there was very little oversight from any central government in this region in in Western Sahara. As we said, Morocco claims that it was it was kind of overseeing, but that's that's disputed but the the biggest thing to impact this region uh was in the second half of the 19th century which was the scramble for africa which anybody who knows anything about the history of of africa in general will know about uh mm-hmm. but to give you a brief that, that primer, bit of time uh, where europe said we own that about a whole yes continent. we want to we want to slice of this pie yeah and <laughs> they uh, want the pie the, <laughs> give me the, your damn pie yes yes 
<sighs> it was the slow and deliberate process of occupation, division, and uh, colonization of basically in the entire African continent by European powers between the period of 1881 and 1914. And I guess just a note here that this was a time, and this will become relevant later, uh, it was a time where colonies were seen as useful bargaining chips uh, in settling wars and disputes between mm. nations. Uh, so two major European nations might have a conflict and they say, okay, we'll hand you this piece of, you know, piece of territory as a, as a consolation prize, yeah. you know, like, or uh, mm. as part of uh, rep- reparations for the war. It was currency, essentially. I mean, you're, you're right. That's, that's, that is how yeah, it, was used. it was It was currency between countries. Do you want a small African nation? Here you go. <laughs> yeah. We'll give you a Suriname for a New York. Um, no, yes. That kind of thing. So there were a few major European powers that had very few colonies, such as Italy and Belgium. And they saw Africa oh, then as an is. ideal opportunity to expand their oh. territories and, and get a few, get their hands on a few of these bargaining chips. Oh, no. Yeah, they so did. in the second half of the 19th century, France occupied Tunisia and... Uh, uh, Britain occupied Egypt, as we mentioned, largely as an effort to control the Suez Canal. Italy occupied parts of Eritrea. Germany declared protectorates over Togo, Cameroon, and Southwest Africa, which you can hear about ah, in our Namibia, Namibia episode. Yeah. Is that our first episode? Yes, our very first episode. So keep scrolling, guys. Keep scrolling. Yeah, keep scrolling back through the, the, the back catalogue. Uh, there was also a battle over the Congo at this time, contested between Portugal, Belgium, and France. Uh, mm-hmm. And Basically, it, it became clear that there needed to be some kind of a consensus reached here by, by the European powers. So in 1884, Otto von Bismarck convened the 1884 to 1885 Berlin Conference to yeah. discuss the quote-unquote African problem. This was done <sighs> sort of as a... As a, as a joke? Know, it was pitched... Oh, no. No, <laughs> it was pitched as a, as, a, as a kind of a humanitarian effort in some ways. Like, oh, we got to... Uh, protect the missionaries and clamp down on the slave trade and and really kind of get to grips with what's going on here in africa to be responsible uh, responsible stewards of the continent yeah but it was essentially just uh who wants what bits and what you know which how can we i want all of it of course you do britain we know you want all of it well i (laughs) do so at this conference uh spain declared a protectorate of the african coast from cape blanc to cape boador on the 26th of december 1884 uh submitted its claim formally in writing seemingly the other european powers didn't contest as much i assume because there was very little of of perceived value that was in this region i still would have liked it just Uh, to have it but i guess you could have it So this territory was ceded to Spain and became known as Rio de Oro, which translates roughly to Golden River. Uh, It was one of the last acquisitions of the Spanish Empire and would be one of the last, as we'll see, to be relinquished Mm, by Spain. Uh, Presumably their interest in in this region was to do with the Canaries, no? The Canary Islands. I think so, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I guess we haven't mentioned it in detail yet, but yeah, the Canary Islands lie... Uh, very close surprisingly to deep this into part Africa. Of Africa oh yeah 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 I was there actually uh, I was there earlier this year and yeah it's I mean it's kind of weird when you're on the plane and you're looking at uh, like you're technically going to I guess a part of Europe or what's considered a part of Europe uh, because of Spanish territory even to this day but it's it's mm. basically in you know it's basically right off the coast of of, of Western Africa yeah so uh, and yeah, specifically it's, it's, southern Morocco and western Sahara yeah 
so I guess this, yeah, you're right. This this would have given them sort of a, a greater sphere of influence around the Canary Islands and and yeah, and they the were already mainland. in the in the territory for four hundred years more or less. They, yeah, they've been on the islands, so they were fishing in those waters and having some uh, access to the land to the other side of the water is probably is, yeah, it's per- probably handy. B- better having it than not having it, I guess. Is, is... exactly uh, yeah. yes. Better having it than someone else having yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So when the Berlin Conference was convened, this is a this is a crazy stat. When the Berlin Conference was convened, eighty percent of Africa was still under African control, and then between then oh, and wow. nineteen fourteen, Britain took nearly thirty percent of Africa's population under its control. Uh, France took fifteen percent. Uh, Portugal took eleven percent. Germany took nine percent. Belgium took seven percent, and one percent went to Italy. So that's almost seventy percent. It's a swing from. 80% was under African control to, you know, yeah. not too far away from 80% was under European oh, control. But you're left with just Ethiopia and Liberia. I think they were the only places never colonized. Yeah, um, they're they're the two big ones in Africa, at least, yeah. And Morocco was French, right? It wasn't ceded to France in the Berlin Conference, but uh, France... Sphere of influence, uh, I guess? Laid claim to it, yeah, yeah but it, it's yeah, it's under its sphere of influence, and and yeah, uh, France I'm just thinking of Casablanca de, uh, declares a, yeah, France later declares a protectorate over Morocco because ah, seemingly it, yes, it it was afraid that it couldn't protect itself, so it's like oh we'll 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 protect you, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll look after you, and also colonize you. Yeah. <laughs> so the conference Berlin conference also resulted in obviously um, these arbitrarily drawn borders and divisions, many of which made basically no sense in the context of the mm-hmm. people that lived there but were just drawn up by by europeans who had never seen or visited the, the region and knew nothing about the people that lived there but did um, have very straight rulers yeah yes in 1885 spain begins to build outposts along the coast of its new colony and begins the process of mapping western sahara and a guy called Sultan Hassan I was uh, ruling Morocco at this time and strengthened the military specifically to resist foreign incursions into his domains. As a result, Spanish settlements came under attack from uh, local Berber tribes, as well as uh, in some places Moroccan forces, I believe. And Spain fought, you know, what would become an, a sort of an ongoing battle to legitimize its claim over this region. Okay. Uh, since nobody who had a legal claim, again, like we mentioned, nobody had sort of a... Uh, like a piece of paper you know a, f- a deed yeah formal claim over over this region then spanish officials contrived to sign a treaty with the emir of adrar who i believe was in algeria and had very little to do with this region yeah so they basically go went For to now. this guy and said hey can you sign a piece of paper that says that we own western sahara <laughs> and he was like but i don't own it and they're like yeah it doesn't really matter just sign it just recognize we that can, we do you, you, we can you, say you look about right that, oh jesus yes you've got a turban and stuff yeah, so Spanish officials then took this to the Sultan of Morocco and said, look, we have a piece of paper that says uh, that we own this place, so please stop attacking us. Hmm. Sultan uh, Moulay Hassan wrote back and said, uh, in 1886, wrote back to Spain and said, our southern frontier is bounded by Egypt, uh, the Sudan, and thirdly by Algeria. As for Rio de Oro, an investigation made among the people living in this region revealed it to be inhabited by the Ulet Delim and mm-hmm. the tribe of the Aruisien, our faithful servants who established themselves around Marrakesh and Fez and called this region Tahala. Basically, he's saying there, we don't recognize your legitimacy in this region. And, you know, it's sort of saying we don't, we might not 
directly control the region, but we do yeah. have subjects and people who pay tribute to us who um, who claim it, and therefore we don't we don't recognize uh, Spain as uh, owning this place. The region is called Dakla again now. That's, yeah, that's the name yeah. of the, the city. So, it, it had a Spanish mm-hmm. name for a while, Villa Villa de Castana or something, but it's, yeah, it's Dakla again. That's correct. So in 1887, the area was incorporated into the Captaincy General of the Canary Islands for military purposes. Mm. Um, yeah, and by the late 1890s, Spain has much bigger problems to deal with in the form of the Spanish-American War. Oh, uh, you can see yeah. more in our Cuba episode on that. But basically, in 1898, Spain is forced to sue for peace and cedes a bunch of territories to the U.S. This one is not part of it, but. Basically, uh, Spain suffers crippling financial losses in the Spanish-American War. <laughs> so often. And begins to, yeah, and begins to, uh, you know, look around for territories that it can use as one of these, like I said, bargaining chips earlier. You know, it's like, what what do we have that we can sell? And somebody comes up and it's like, oh, we have that Western Sahara place. We could sell that. Uh, so they, they pitch it to Austria-Hungary, who are apparently the only people who are willing to listen <laughs> to them. The Austrians were keen. Oh, uh, because they had essentially no overseas colonies, yes, with the exception mm. of a a minor concession zone in Tianjin, China, which we have to talk about that at some point. We won't get into it now, but that was that was part of the settlement of the Boxer Rebellion, I think. Where, uh, and then yeah. they also had BBC's a, in our time is a wonderful episode on the Boxer, Boxer Rebellion. So not so it's, yeah. it's, mad. it's the not a, it's one we, of the we, maddest. We definitely need to tackle that at some point. Yeah, yeah. just Nanjing maybe. Hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, there was also a failed attempt at colonizing the Nicobar Islands, which I think we've discussed doing an episode on as well. Um, they're now part of India. Okay. Uh, but the Hungarian side were much less enthusiastic, and the deal collapsed. So they they couldn't find a buyer for for Rio de Oro. Damn, also hungry. I mean, they're already they're already trying to sell it 15 years after they staked the claim on it. So that that kind yeah. of gives you an idea of how how much they they care about this territory. Yeah. No one wants a secondhand colony. Now, in 1904, Britain and France cozy up and sign a treaty known as the Entente Cordiale, uh, establishing mm-hmm. Britain's rights in Egypt and formalizing France's rights in Morocco. Mm-hmm. And this kind of pisses off Germany because, I mean, obviously Britain and France are two of the biggest European powers and they had been, you know, at war with each other for, what, like 100 years before this point, And now they're starting to, to kind of... A couple of hundred um, years, I think, at that point. Yeah. So they're now they're starting to, to kind of form an alliance and Germany sees this as potentially isolating. So in response, uh, Emperor Wilhelm II of Germany decides to thumb his nose at the other powers and declares his support for Morocco's independence in 1905. Yeah, he's like, oh, I think oh. Morocco should be independent because, you know, yeah. just, to, just to piss off <laughs> Because he's a I born guess. asshole. This results in what will later be known as the first Moroccan crisis. And it was intended to disrupt the uh, flowering relationship between France and Britain, but instead only succeeded in pushing them closer together. Nice. In hmm. 1906, the Al- Algeciras con- conference uh, is held in Spain. Algeciras, I think, is directly across the Strait of Gibraltar from Morocco, so very, very close to this region. Okay. And uh, was attended by the great European powers as well as the United States. And its purpose was to kind of calm this whole thing down and uh, discuss France's relationship to the government of Morocco. But in truth, it was just sort of like, again, uh, kind of, you know, sorting everybody out about like who wants where and uh, who can trade, you know, in in which parts of Africa. In the end, France was given de facto control over Morocco, 
to protect its own interests there, while uh, others were granted economic rights and freedoms to keep them happy. This temporarily solved the first Moroccan crisis, but only uh, worsened. But we are in the 1910s. So not too many more crises are going to get solved. Only worsened international tensions between the the Triple Alliance of Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy, and the Triple Entente of Russia, France, and England. So if if those two sides sound familiar, then you know what's coming next. Uh, In 1911, there's an uprising against colonial forces in the port city of Agadir. And Germany again seizes the opportunity to stir it up. (laughs) Oh, Luke's war! Luke's war, guys! That's not yeah. just me. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I get one free uh, swear later on. And decides to cause some chaos, sends a naval gunboat into the harbor under the guise of protecting its interests in the city, but in reality uh, was actually sort of an intimidation tactic against France. And I think uh, was trying to sort of scare them into into maybe switching sides and um, allying with Germany rather than with that Britain. That makes no sense. This sparked what was known again as the second Moroccan crisis, where pretty much all the European powers began to prepare for war. Luckily for them, I guess, or maybe unluckily, uh, there was a a pretty big financial downturn in Germany right in the middle of this incident. And the Kaiser had to focus his attentions back home. was like, okay, all right, all right. Well, you know, we'll back down for now. So in in November 1911, the European powers reconvened, signed the Treaty of, of Fez, in which France was given even greater rights to Morocco and, and also was allowed to form a protectorship. Yeah. Uh, I was allowed to form a protectorship over Morocco and Germany was given access to some parts of territory from the French Congo. So again, bargaining chip, do you take a bit of this? I'll take a bit of that. The conference essentially resulted in the French and Spanish being entrusted with the governance of Morocco. Uh, hmm. Although it remained technically independent, like the Sultan was still in charge, but he was sort of like How a How nice for him, yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks, lads. Spain uh, would take a northern strip near its own border, so across the Strait of Gibraltar, uh, and okay. a southern section bordering up has. against uh, Rio de Oro, yes, some of which it still has. And uh, other powers such as Germany would be granted certain economic freedoms in the region. So now we have... Uh, if we're looking at kind of the the entire west coast uh northwest coast of africa i guess we have uh spain and then across the strait of gibraltar we have a bit of spain like a bit of spanish controlled morocco then most of morocco is controlled by uh france and then below that you have a, a strip of morocco again which is controlled by spain and then further south is western sahara controlled by spain which is controlled by spain yes which is controlled by spain yes correct so you have sort of france in the middle of a spanish Sandwich, sandwich. <laughs> I guess. Uh, Come on, queso yeah, sandwich. Yeah. What sandwich in Spanish? Yeah. Bocadillo. Bocadillo, yes. <laughs> uh, in 1914, uh, first year of World War One, there was a small battle just off the coast of Western Sahara as a German cruiser, the SS Kaiser Wilhelm der Gross, was caught in That's the harbor nice. by, uh, uh, by a British ship, the HMS High Flyer. Um, the SS Kaiser Wilhelm der Gross was resupplying in a neutral port from Austrian uh, coal ships. Uh, the captain of the High Flyer, the British ship, demanded a German surrender. The German commander countered that to engage in a Spanish port would violate Spain's neutrality, and Spain was neutral in World War One, As always. And the British commander pointed out that by taking more than a week to resupply in a neutral port, the Germans had kind of already violated the, the, the neutrality of Spain 
and open fire. Um, All right. Hmm. The Germans were essentially outgunned and ran out of ammunition, and uh, they were forced to scuttle their ship and flee to the coast. I couldn't find anything about what happened to the the survivors. I I don't think it was any more than sort of a dozen um, Germans on this ship. But yeah, these um, sound yeah, like the not amazingly large this ships. Is a, these sound like kind of B team no. ships a little bit. Yeah, the Kaiser yeah. Wilhelm, the fat, the big old big old Kaiser, big booty yeah. Kaiser ship, <laughs> and also the yep. HMS Snippy Nips. Uh, like they're yeah. they're not, you know, they're not striking fear and terror into the in, into the hearts of sailors seamen sorry seamen seamen it's free yeah directly related to what they are during the interwar years spain continued to put down different rebellions and essentially just continue to exert its control over the territory but the, the the berber tribes are never really happy were they no i mean they, they never they never truly accept spanish sovereignty over this area obviously and they'd never and, really yeah, accepted anyone's sovereignty over the area they just they're no. nomads so so yeah i mean there's there's a bunch of small skirmishes and and rising uprisings and rebellions and things like that during essentially this entire period but i'm, I'm not going to get into any of them uh in, in in too you know too great a detail yeah further north moroccan troops were fighting for france in several battles during world war ii uh we we talked about this in our new caledonia episode and in other episodes but effectively Morocco was hoping that by fighting in World War II mm. with one of the larger European powers, it you would then dummies. be granted its independence after the war was over. Because, you know, there was this whole narrative about anti-colonialism during World War II. Mm-hmm. And against their expectations, once the war was over, the French regime became even more brutal and no. aggressive than it had been before. No. Uh, yeah. The after this point... Yeah. Uh, the goal after this point, there were many them. uprisings. Did you get it? Yeah, again... Yes, the Gaul. Yes, I got it. I got it. And not specific nice to Gaul. I mean, general um, to Gaul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, France and Spain would occasionally join forces in the region and put down uh, particularly tough rebels. This continued for a number of years after World War II until in 1953, after uh, what became known as the Revolution of the King and the People, Morocco Great secured name. its independence from both France and Spain. So at this time... Spain ceded its control over the northern part. As I mentioned earlier, it's, it's kind of northern sliver of Morocco. Mm. And France ceded its part of Morocco. So now you have uh, just the southern part of Morocco, which is still controlled by Spain and borders up against Western Sahara. Now free of the colonial yoke, uh, Morocco turns its attention south and is like, we want our territory <laughs> Let's back. Let's colonize uh, everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. This expansionist attitude from morocco would eventually erupt into a conflict known as the uh, ifni war or the forgotten war as, it, as it's called by spain uh, that was in 1957 the moroccan army of liberation basically no longer tied down in conflicts with the french decides to take over the the spanish uh, sliver the southern spanish sliver of, of morocco that war lasts for about now, but eight that months do you, do, by that do you mean western sahara or spain or no. still more of Spain had never Current given up board. its its southern uh, part of Morocco. Okay, so, so they they had more more they had some Morocco and then also Western Sahara. Yeah. Yes, and they border up Under against each control. other. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So cool. when France gives back Morocco uh, or ceded its, mm-hmm. uh, you know ceded its control of Morocco, uh, Spain gave up most of the northern part that it had controlled before. As you mentioned, not all of it, but you know maintained a couple of small. Um, enclaves but gave up the majority yep. of its land there but did not give up the southern part 
So that's what Morocco's going after now. Okay. Um, the, that war lasted for about eight months and resulted in the signing of the Treaty of Angra de Sintra, which granted Morocco possession over its original borders again and most of Spain's southern Moroccan territories. Again, they, they held on to one or two, right. I think, sort mm-hmm. of like uh, cities, but the, the majority of the land was, was ceded back to Morocco. The border between Morocco and Spanish Horror is, is sort of creeping southward at this point, but um, Spain still controls the, the large, large part of Western Sahara. In 1958, uh, Spain consolidates all of the territories that it, it still retains in this area, and they now become known as Spanish Sahara. Oh, okay. okay. So that's where we get the name Spanish Sahara. Throughout the 1960s, Morocco continues to claim Spanish Sahara, and international pressure then begins to mount on Spain as other North African and Sub-Saharan possessions and protectorates start to gain their independence from European powers. So, so this this was know, very this much a, like a the... UN project, wasn't it? Post-war, yes. Th- yes. They had a list of uh, what's it called, like the the candidates for anti-colonial decolonization, uh, non. Is that it? Yeah, they're like a, it's like a list of non-self-governing territories or some, yeah. something like that. Um, and in the sixties, that list was very long. And yes, nowadays it's it's basically here and some islands. Yes, are still left. Yeah, so Mauritania was also uh, claiming Spanish Sahara. Yes, it was. They were like, "Oh, if if you guys are, if you guys are, if you guys are thinking about pulling out of Spanish Sahara, then you know we we want to taste." In in 1963, uh, the UN adds Spanish Sahara to its list of territories to be decolonized, and Mm. at the time, Namibia was part of that list. And I mean, this list still exists, and Mm -hmm. currently, uh, it's just shorter than it used to be. Yes. Uh, currently on it are Western Sahara, as well as Gibraltar, St. Helena, and uh, New Caledonia. You know, just just the ones that are featured in our, our back catalogue. But it, and of course, we don't we don't just go through this list when we're looking for a new episode. Yeah, it's, not, it's one of those lists like the um, the blacklist for money laundering that <laughs> just happens yep. to feature a lot of our yeah. past episodes and potentially future episodes as well. Mm. <laughs> so in in May 1973, a bunch of Sawari university students and soldiers from Spanish uh, from the Spanish army assembled in a small village fort in northeast Mauritania to declare and formally constitute the Polisario Front, a nationalist organization which would fight for the independence of the region from Spain, Morocco and Mauritania. So I think we have a clip here from Nick explaining where that name comes from. So we'll drop him in just here and he can uh, he can let us know where that, you know, the significance of that name. The English rendering of that acronym is the Popular Front for the Liberation of Sagir Alhamra and the Rio de Oro. Now, Sagir Alhamra and Rio de Oro are the two regions that make up the territory of Western Sahara. Sagir Alhamra is dominated by um, the Sagir Alhamra, which is basically a large ephemeral, now largely inactive river system in the north, um, and the uh, Rio de Oro um, is the southern part of Western Sahara. A very cool name. It is very cool. Yeah. It's got something of a kind of South American revolutionary vibe, you know, looking yeah. looking mm. cool, berets, AK-47s, all that stuff. Revolutionary yeah. chic. I also have a, just a quick quote here from a guy called Jay Gopalan uh, from the Harvard Political Review. And he, he just explains, I thought this was kind of an, a nice, succinct quote. He just uh, explains, like, after the formation of the Polisario Front, uh, quote, Ten days later, seven of these individuals began their campaign across the West African coast, attacking a Spanish outpost at El Cahanga. 
With this began the Western Saharan conflict, the most devastating African independence struggle that nobody has heard of. So, that's, yeah, kind of speaks that's to fair. the fact that very few people know about this conflict. And I, I think that's one mm-hmm. of the reasons why Eric wanted us to cover this this region is is because it's 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 quite fascinating well, but once you yeah, again once you do know about it you're like but how do we know yeah that's the first question is like how have i how not heard of this the news and yes, maybe th- yes. th- this is the point to mention um the flag that the sahrawi kind of liberation people sure, yeah. uh, front Let's do flag talk chose for themselves looks remarkably familiar yes uh, mm-hmm. it, it it's almost identical to the palestinian flag so it, it's that that Black, white, and green tricolor with a with a red chevron yeah. in the left side of the flag, and the only difference to the to the Palestinian flag is that it has a red crescent and star right. on on the white band of the flag. Okay, and I've kind of been you know the conflict has some to me some vague echoes of the the Palestinian situation where like you know a, a population are sort of removed from their land and there's kind of a frozen conflict and there's a two-state solution potential mm. and there's you know it just it ha- it has echoes but you you hear so much about the Israel-Palestine conflict and you never hear about this one because there's no Jerusalem in the middle I suppose. Yeah, we were talking about this before mm-hmm. and it like it, it totally fits with yeah. the kind of uh uh what's it is it Rumsfeld or similar? Uh, if Kuwait grew car- carrots, we wouldn't give a damn. <laughs> like that kind of a sure. It, like th- there's just not that much intrinsic, you know, worth. There's, there's mm. no, you know, massive mining operations directly there. There's you know, there, there, there's little bits and pieces economically that it's just you know incentive enough to to keep hold yeah. of it, but like not not a huge mm. amount. But the 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 influence of the flag is very much from the uh, the, the Arab uprisings against against colonialism mm. in in say Jordan and Syria in the early 20th century and they all had this very similar kind of color scheme of their flags and Jordan still has essentially the same flag with a with a star on it uh, and the Ba'ath parties in Syria and Iraq had very similar flags so this is you know they're really tying themselves to this idea of kind of Arab nationalism yeah, yeah. Uh, despite yeah. as we discussed earlier the kind of ethnic shakiness of that concept of being Arabs yeah. because they're genetically mostly Berber but culturally very Arabized so it's yeah. it's odd and I, I love the coat of arms of the um, of the kind of yeah that's very cool putative nation of the Sahrawi mm-hmm. Arab Democratic Republic it's just the flag hanging off two rifles wrapped in in a in an olive wreath so it's a very confusing image so, yeah, basically the Polisario Front would spell the end for Spain in this region. I mean, mm-hmm. I get the sense that they were sort of already looking for a way out at this point. Um, and uh, in the in the sort of mid-70s, the health of uh, Francisco Franco, uh, who, was, who was still leading Spain in the mid-70s, was yep. declining rapidly. And the government basically had neither the, the, the will nor the backing or political capital to fight, you know, another war against a, an insurgent group. There was growing international pressure, like we said, from the UN to decolonize this region. But obviously, there's 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 no real easy solution here as to as to what to, uh, you know, what direction to go. So what happens is, mm-hmm. um, in 1975, there were meetings held between Spain and the Polisario leadership, 
but those were protested by Morocco, Mauritania, and so the UN gets you involved. Had their designs. Yeah, they had their claims uh, over the region, and they 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 wanted them to be recognized, and they didn't want Spain to be dealing with this, you know, as as they saw it, kind of insurgent group. So the UN becomes involved after Morocco requests an opinion on the legality of its demands from the International Court of of Justice, hmm. and the UN sends a mission to uh, Western Sahara to examine the wishes of the population. And the visiting mission returns its report on October 15th, uh, 1975, and says there is an overwhelming consensus in favor of independence. Right. So the so the country got independence and it's it's over now, yeah? So this is obviously not the result that Morocco was hoping for or Mauritania. Uh, so yeah, let's let's take a quick break here and then and then we'll we'll come back with uh, the aftermath of, of that decision. Okay, so Mark, do you wanna do you wanna tell us what uh, what the reaction was from this decision? So um, the decision was extraordinarily clear, being fourteen to two against the Moroccan claim and fifteen to one against the Mauritanian claim. It makes me feel a bit bad for Mauritania because I mean, as as unsubstantiated as, as Morocco's claim was, Mauritania's was apparently even worse. Uh, they, yeah. <laughs> like, like Morocco has no claim. Mauritania, doubly so. You are, you are yeah. taking the piss. Um, so the the decision comes out on October seventeenth, nineteen seventy five, and Morocco then leads what was termed the Green March, where three oh, hundred and fifty thousand yeah. Moroccans marched south to Spanish Sahara to reclaim their and I quote historical land. On November sixth. That's an insane, insane. Like, how do you mobilize that many people yeah. and civilians? Right? This wasn't this yeah, wasn't, this wasn't no, military no, no. exercise. No. Um, on November sixth, the volunteers crossed the border into Spanish Sahara. Spanish soldiers received orders not to fire on the marchers and even assisted the marchers in avoiding the landmines. Three days later, after Spain agreed to enter into negotiations for the relinquishment of the Sahara, uh, King Hassan II announced that the marchers could return home. Um, on November 14th, so that is eight days later, representatives from Spain, Morocco, and Mauritania signed the Pact of Madrid, which divided the territory between the two African countries. Franco, as you said, Luke, he was in hospital, having been operated on twice since the Green March began, and died in mm. the early hours of uh, the morning of November the 20th. Spain would formally complete its withdrawal from Western Sahara in 1976. Now, it's worth mentioning uh, just about the, the, the foundation of the Polisario Front that uh, the, one of the main guys in, in kind of setting it up was a guy called El Uali Mustafa Sayed. And I would highly recommend checking out a picture of this guy because he looks super cool. He looks... Eh, I, got, I, got, I have kind of a crush on this guy. He's got like a 
All right. Big curly kind of afro, uh, clipped uh, facial hair. He he just looks really cool, and he was also very young as well. I think I, I think he he was like in his very early twenties when the the group was started because they were started in, in universities in in Morocco. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's these kind of like insurgent leaders in the seventies tend to look pretty cool yeah i think i mean from what we've seen in, in previously they, they, they didn't well, have... just just like investment bankers in the 70s looked margin oh, like much cooler true. than they do now yeah, so true. yeah I mean, true everyone was <laughs> cooler um but anyway so this guy was the 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 military leader of the polisario front and, and the, um, the the political leader from that era till till 2016 when he died was a uh, muhammad abdulaziz azadina and also like you know, it was a small group of young, enthusiastic revolutionaries. I, I think just as you mentioned that, it's, it's one of the things worth mentioning that uh, uh, there's a, quite a lot of, you know, if, if you read through the, the literature, there's not that many positive views, positive neutral views, I would say, of, of how Morocco is, has handled all of this. Um, and mm. in, in the name of balance, we were talking about like how the best best way to balance this out is and that just when you say about Abdulaziz, what one of the points made that I saw made in a sort of a not very partisan way, in a not very partisan way, was well, this guy was installed as leader and was leader for thirty something years. Is that is that good? I I don't know if that's yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's actually a fair criticism. At the same time, you could say that you know even the the Americans suspended the constitution in World War Two, and when a, a state is fighting for its life, maybe you know the democratic process is not the first. The first uh, priority fighting to survive. It also wouldn't wouldn't be the first, um, you know, movement of national liberation in Africa or South America to have a, a you know, a president for a long also time. True. Yeah, uh, it's it is pretty consistent. Now, calling yourself the the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic when you never change your leader is potentially problematic. Yeah, but. that's a branding issue. I think. It's- Send yeah. that to Denise in marketing. Uh, well, it's kind of an aspiration. So, uh, anyway, they so... They don't actually have the territory yet, so... So, uh, the first thing... Uh, so, Franco Franco dies, the, the treaty's signed, and essentially the, the whole Western Sahara area is, is split between Morocco and Mauritania, who promptly invade. In 1976, in uh, Bir al-Lalu, uh, the Western Sa- in Western Sahara, the Polisario Front declared the establishment of the first Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic (SADR), as it is often known by its acronym. Mm. And they were very busy very quickly because they suddenly got forty thousand Sahrawi refugees fleeing these two invasions. The oh, refugees wow. were mainly women, children, and the elderly because most of the men went off to join the Polisario military force. Uh, Morocco as a military force was a lot better equipped than the Polisario Front. Um, Moroccan, the Moroccans had an air force and they were subsequently launching air attacks on the Sahrawi refugee camps, causing hundreds of deaths, in some cases dropping uh, napalm, white phosphorus and other very nasty things. Um, their intention was to force the refugees to return to the areas that they had fled, which were now under Moroccan control. Instead, the bombings galvanized the Sahrawis, and moreover, the invasion and exodus helped break down traditional tribal barriers, facilitating the growth of a Sahrawi national identity among the refugees, who are now living together in, in camps. Spain, um, and this, is, this came out a little bit through my, my conversation with, with Nick, uh, but in, in, certain, in certain ways, Spain feels quite 
guilty and quite bad about how all of this played out. You know, they kind of well, they just right. they essentially just left and just like you know, Mary Celeste left the, the cooling food on the table. Like they just ran out the door, yeah. and Morocco and Mauritania then you know went crazy in, in trying to trying to grab what they could. Um, but also, it's worth mentioning that you know, given Spain's modern political history in terms of uh, the Basque Country and Catalonia. There are certain areas within Spain that uh, appreciate these Sahrawi attempts at self-determination as well. So there's it's a complicated, oh. complicated, uh, complicated relationship actually. Oh, that's oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, it's also worth mentioning that the United States uh, appears to have contributed to the uh, Green March in terms of planning, and also a, a Saudi-sponsored strategic studies group based in London. Uh, it's worth mentioning that Morocco, for all of their sins, were not communists. And the Polisario Front had, were regarded as quite uh, left-wing, let's say, and thus on the wrong side of the Very cold. Left, yeah. And thus on the wrong side of the Cold War, as far as the U.S. was concerned. Mm. And the Polisario Front were the broken eggs in a Cold War victory omelet, uh, with regards uh, U.S. Um, support and you know military support. I don't, I don't remember reading anything about them getting any Russian support at any point. Russian support, they? no. Uh, Cuban, Cuban, yes. Cuban, yes. I also. Because of the I language. saw mention of North Korea also. Um, yeah. Hmm. Um, North Korea. Who, who, but it is an interesting point that because of the shared language, like a lot of Sahrawis still speak Spanish as a second oh, yeah. language. Yeah, yeah. And so there are much tighter links to Cuba than you might expect for a uh, for a West African country. And people still go there for university and stuff. To exactly. Yeah, that was uh, more, more insight from, from Nick there. Um, so according to witnesses... Um, the Moroccan soldiers acted pretty brutally as they invaded. Uh, as word spread of widespread murder, rape, and other atrocities, Sahrawi civilians uh, were were fleeing en masse. Now, France, who had, along with Spain, supported the takeover of Western Sahara, they backed the regime of a guy called Mokhtar Auld Dada in Mauritania, whom they had installed as president at the end of the colonial era in the 1960s. Uh, both Mauritania and Morocco were supplied with new military hardware and generous economic aid to enable them to maintain their grip on the territory. French personnel also were sent to Mauritania to train their army and they took up important positions in the economy. In 1977, France intervened after a group of French technicians were taken prisoner during a raid on the Zurate iron mines in uh, Mauritania, which was the main source of income for the country. The French Air Force deployed Sepikat Jaguar jets to Mauritania in 1978 under the orders of President Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, which report repeatedly bombed the Palisario columns, which were headed for Mauritania, with napalm. Wow. The Palisario Front launched a raid on the capital of Mauritania, Nouakchott. Yes, during which that's during which the Palisario leader El Aouli was killed. Uh, and replaced by Mohammed Abdelaziz, who we, we discussed. But there was no let-up in the pace of attacks. Under this continued pressure, the Dada regime finally fell in 1978 to a coup d'etat led by their war-weary military officers, who immediately agreed a ceasefire with the Polisario. Oh. A comprehensive peace treaty was signed on August 5th, 1979, under which the new government recognised Sahrawi rights to Western Sahara and relinquished their own claims. Mauritania withdrew all their forces from Western Sahara and would later proceed to formally recognize the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, the SADR, causing a massive rupture wow. in relations with Morocco. That's it's huge. 
King Hassan II yeah, of Morocco. Morocco's not gonna like that. <laughs> King Hassan II of Morocco immediately claimed the area of Western Sahara evacuated by Mauritania. Now that's that's pushing it. It is it is pretty much pushing it. Now I didn't really get a lot of detail in terms of the the, the conflict between Morocco and uh, Western Sahara, but it kind of takes a back seat to what what happened next, which is in in simple terms the berm. That is the headline I have in my notes. Mauritania mm. were now out of the fight, and Morocco had a decision to make. They had claimed all this land, taken it militarily. How can they retain it and also defend against apparently a pretty flippin' potent fighting force in the SADR? So they decided to make Morocco great again, lock them up, and build that wall. They decided to build a yes. massive two to three meter wall across the desert to keep the Polisario front in their own rather less nice bit of desert away from all the lovely natural resources that were on offer. Luke, do you have any, anything to add on that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the most important thing here to explain, I guess, is the geography. So mm. we will include a map in our show notes, which will sort of lay this all out. And, you know, it's worth taking a look. But if you if you can't check those out right now, like they, they should be embedded in your podcast player or, or there, there'll definitely be a link to our website there. But if you can't check them out right now, uh, basically, the berm runs sort of parallel to the coastline of Western Sahara, but effectively sort of two thirds of the way inland is what I would say. Um, yeah. So yeah. essentially just, just se- separates off the coastline and a large chunk of the, you know, the inland part of Western Sahara and sort of leaves just a sort of a sliver to so there's the a sli- east. There's a sliver along the there's a tiny sliver along the Mauritanian border yes that is not inside this wall yeah Yeah. and then desert in the east yeah so effectively Morocco takes over I'd say maybe 70% of the of the land here and sort Mm. of wedges uh, the Polisario front into what what is remaining yeah uh, which is sort of sandwiched between there and Mauritania Algeria and it's it's fairly uninhabitable is fairly uninhabitable is is basically just just you know bare desert um so it says we're taking all this all this you know better stuff and uh you guys can sort of you know hang out on that side of the wall and do whatever you like basically because we're 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 gonna uh we're gonna fortify this you know this area and keep you guys wedged between our wall and other international borders and and the fortifications are insane. Like you, you, you go to Google Ma- Google Maps and look at the satellite images. You can see this wall yeah. from space. Yes, yes. It's just a line through the sand, uh, and little forts every what every fifty kilometers or so. That. Yeah. So the, so the I I just dug up a few stats here, but but um the the fortifications were built by Moroccan forces. I think you mentioned earlier, Mark, in stages. Uh, um, yes, between... in six stages. Yeah, between 1981 and, and um, 1987, so I guess roughly one a year. About and that, the berm or the wall is approximately uh, 2,700 kilometers long, mostly made of sand and runs through pretty much all of Western Sahara and the southwestern portion of Morocco as well. So they've kind of built it up um, through into southern Morocco so that you can't sort of like, you know, it's it's not very easy to sort of like just, just go over the border in Morocco and then back down the other side of the wall, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Um, so you'd have to get quite far into Morocco to be able to get around the wall. It's patrolled by more than 100,000 Moroccan soldiers. Uh, the minefield running alongside it includes some of the densest landmine contamination on the planet. Uh, and it's also the world's longest minefield. Yep. Contains an estimated 7 million landmines, which kill wow. you know, dozens if not um, if not more people every year. Yeah, yeah it's... Uh, it's known by the people that live on the other side of it as a wall of shame. Right. And I have a I have a quote that I'm going to read from here, a field report from a guy called uh, Michael Bahita, which was published in 2001 in African Political Economy. It says, physically, the berm is a two meter or six foot seven inch high wall with a backing trench, which rides along a topographical high point ridge slash hill along the entire territory. Spaced out every five kilometers or 3.1 miles are big, small, and medium bases with approximately 35 or 40 troops at each observation post and groups of 10 soldiers spaced out over that distance as well. About four kilometers or every two and a half miles behind each major post, there is a rapid reaction post, which includes the which includes backing mobile forces such as tanks. A series of overla overlapping fixed and mobile radars are also positioned throughout the berm. The radars are estimated to have a range of between 60 and 80 kilometers or 37 to 50 miles uh, into Polisario controlled territory and are generally utilized to locate artillery fire onto d detected Polisario forces. Information from the radar is processed by a forward based commander who contacts a rear based artillery unit. So essentially they're, they're just looking for Polisario positions and then firing shells over the wall uh, wherever yeah. they find them. Yeah. So. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, um, in September 2018, not too, uh, you know, not too long ago when we we're recording this, uh, a guy called Josep Borrell, uh, Spain's foreign minister, revealed that Donald Trump had suggested that Spain build a wall across the Sahara oh, no. to curb immigration into Europe. He apparently made those comments uh, to a Spanish delegation in the U.S. in June telling them, quote, the Sahara border can't be longer than our border with Mexico. Uh, uh, yeah, the now the US, the, the berm, which apparently Donald Trump doesn't know about, is shorter than the U.S.-Mexico border. You take but, that back, Luke. Uh, you take that back. But the U.S.-Mexico border is about 2000 miles long, while the Sahara Desert stretches an estimated 3000 miles across 11 countries in North Africa. And it... <laughs> According to an article I read, it, it equates more uh, more closely to the total size of the U.S. So it'd be effectively building a wall from coast to coast along the U.S. Um, the, yeah, do you have anything else on the on the berm, Mark? Or uh, no, just just a, a pointed quote from British NGO Action on Armed Violence, formerly known as Landmine Action. So you'd figure they'd know. Uh, referring to Western <laughs> Sahara as one of the most heavily mined areas in the world. Uh, but that that that's right. really it, yeah. Th this this is the stuff that starts to make Morocco look like the baddies. Well, yeah, <laughs> that and the napalm and the refugees and the yeah. yeah. I mean, we're we're open open to open to balanced arguments, guys. If if, if you know if there's a view out there that Morocco is somehow uh, uh, the repressed minority, I can feel somehow. I can. I can feel the negative iTunes reviews breathing down the back of my neck as we <laughs> it's, speak. It's, yeah. it's true, it's true. But, like, I assume yeah. from their point of view, this is a defensive measure against... Se 
violent terrorist uh, like you know but it's so much resources to invest like that that's so many people but, but co- manning countries this really struggle with any aspect soldiers. of the country that wants to go off on its own because it, it, it yeah. undermines yeah. the general assumption of the country in itself so even though mm-hmm. you know Kurdistan is its own area and they're their own people they have their own stuff and their own money and their own taxes and their own money Turkey Turkey doesn't want Kurdistan they just don't want to lose a bit of Turkey in any context yeah. so they gotta keep fighting Kurdistan tell them that they're all terrorists and awful and stuff uh, and you know the Kurds and- need to keep bombing and shooting which makes them kind of not not the opposite of that and uh, you know we see yeah. it in Nor- we saw it in Northern Ireland we see it, see it in so many territories it's you know, one, one group wants self-determination. Yeah. They're willing to do what they need to do to get it. Fair enough. One country doesn't want to lose a bit of its country and is willing to do what it needs to do to keep that country together. Fair enough. And you got two things that are basically fair enough, which means everyone starts shooting each other. And that's that's yep, what you got. And it's all place. bad. Yep. Uh, yep. Anyway. But and I suppose we should probably think about what, what, what Morocco wants from this area. I mean, it is the... The second biggest yeah. phosphate oh, mines phosphate. in the world. Flipping Nauru again. Which is like Nauru, yeah. yeah. Good for fertilizer. And it's also uh, a very fertile fishing ground, I believe. Sardines. Uh, the waters yes. Of, uh, Western that, Sahara true. are extremely fertile for fishing. So, um, you know, that, that's why Morocco is kind of sequestered off the coastline in particular, yeah. I guess. because. That's that allows them to extend a claim over the entire coastline. And there are controversies about the EU signing treaties with Morocco over fishing yeah. rights. Has some grey areas about whether or not it is ethical to fish. It is yeah. not. <laughs> it is objectively not. Um, it depends whose sovereignty you recognise, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, well, if it's disputed sovereignty, so, then, you know, you, you might want to hedge your bets a bit. Own. Yeah. Just, just ch- yeah. chill it on out. Maybe focus on a okay. situation. Anyway, so the war is officially over and the territory is supposedly ready for, for what comes next from from the UN and, and, and all the great democratic projects that they, they, they have successfully managed. Wonderful. Sounds great. Uh, we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back to wrap things up uh, after that. So we'll be back just after this. Okay, so after the ceasefire in 1991, we have uh, what's effectively a cold conflict between Morocco and the SADR. And we're going to drop in a clip here from Nick, who uh, very neatly summarizes the situation at this time. Although it's recognized by maybe 40 or 50 mostly developing countries as an independent nation state, um, to most people it's sort of a, 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 te- a vaguely defined territory rather than a bona fide country. 
Having said that, the Sahrawi do have the entire apparatus of government. They, uh, that's based in Algeria, um, where they have um, an administrative centre surrounded by a number of large refugee camps that house estimates vary and are contested, but um, a figure that's often bandied about is about 165,000 refugees living in these camps. But they have essentially an entire country in exile, and they control um, a, a sizable uh, part of Western Sahara, probably about a quarter of the territory, maybe a bit more. Um, which they call the free zone. That's where we've done our work. So, so all of our work has been done in conjunction and collaboration with the Polisario Front. So the, the, the premise of the ceasefire essentially was that there would be a, a vote, uh, that there would mm-hmm. be a, a referendum, essentially, on the future of the territory. On self-determination. On self-determination. Very exciting. Uh, and I can't, can't wait for this to happen. As soon as the war has ended, it's going to happen so soon, right, right away. Uh, the UN, in order to kind of mm-hmm. uh, uh, establish order and, and make sure that there was a peaceful referendum, established a, a, a military force called MINORSO. Um, Which is the U- United Nations mission for the referendum in Western oh, Sahara. Oh, thank you. I was about to question that. Um, yeah. yeah, so they... And they're they, still there. Oh, wait, what? What? But the referendum... Spoiler what? alert. Oh, it never yeah, The it referendum never happened. was just a... It was just around the corner, right? I thought it was just around the corner in 1991. Mm-hmm. No? The idea was that very quickly after the ceasefire, everyone would stick Referend. to the territories they currently held. The UN would accumulate a list of eligible voters. Yeah. And a referendum would occur by 1992. Uh, and so is now... When we're recording this, it is considerably later than 1992. It is, it is 27 it is. years And it has not happened yet. 27 years. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. I was uh, I think I was five when the ceasefire happened. Uh, mm-hmm. I I have hair in all kinds of crazy places now. My body is an old body. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's that's a long time, you guys. That is that's a long it time is. ago. Mm. So the plan was for there to be a, a transitional period, kind of overseen by by the UN Secretary General's personal envoy and they would observe the situation they would help compile voter roles for this referendum that would happen the un high commission on refugees would help repatriate the now up to a hundred thousand people who live in refugee camps and we haven't actually explicitly mentioned uh, although nick just did but much of the nation is in algeria for mm-hmm. decades now. as in the people of the nation yeah. not necessarily the territory the people of yeah, the nation yeah. are living in in uh in camps awaiting a settlement that was meant to come with the settlement plan in 1991 yeah. and so the repatriation hasn't happened but the military presence has kept the ceasefire intact just with very little violence in the period since 1991 and basically the the criteria for eligibility to vote is the key stumbling block as in who's allowed in which territory kind of thing? It was meant to be based on who appeared on the 1975 Spanish census of Western Sahara. Uh-huh. That was meant to sort of determine which tribes and which families and which individuals, right. I suppose, though, of course, a generation later, that's becoming a bit silly. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that was supposed to determine who would vote. And then Morocco had its green, uh, green, green, March, it green line green situation March. where... Tens of thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of people. I doubt they all stayed, but like significant population injection. But I mean, 
into the area. Totally apart from the Green March, I mean, nominally, they were meant to have returned afterwards. They were certainly told that they could return. But, mm -hmm. I mean, over, overall, Morocco, as far as I understand, you know, they have essentially most of the cities on their side of the berm. And yeah. And they continue populated to with Moroccan people, people. and also because you know yeah. they're, they're administering it as a part of their own state. You're going to have people yes. moving down there for work, and you know mm -hmm. there's the industry that's there, and and yeah, so the, the yeah. population has changed. And I think even aside from that, uh, since 1975, I was reading something about like Morocco has offered. I don't know if it's still the case today, but in the you know mid to late 70s, Morocco was offering large tax breaks and different kind of economic incentives for people to move. Mm -hmm. To this region which i mean we've seen again in previous episodes but um plantations sort of essentially to, is what, what that is help, yeah to help uh, yeah, colonize the place settlements on the west bank mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's the same you know you you need to sh you need to flip the the arithmetic of elections in yeah. your favor so i mean yes when when you're definitely going to lose and that's that's why the referendum hasn't happened because if it had happened morocco would have lost yeah. At least initially. And you even have things like a lot of Sahrawi people in Morocco maybe don't live in the oh, territory yeah, yeah, anymore. Yeah. Some of them have and moved they have to move back to Morocco vote proper. or how do you find them even? It's Who gets exactly. to vote? Um, so it's been a bit of a mess. In, in 96, all of the civilian and police aspects of Minurso withdrew because the identification process was stalled and they weren't necessary, but the military component stayed to monitor the ceasefire. Uh, in 97, um, the personal envoy, uh, James Baker, who had been George Bush Sr.'s Secretary of State, so quite a senior yeah. diplomat, he was um, mm. in charge of trying to make in things question, work. Yeah. And he, he had meetings in, in Houston, uh, first with the Houston Agreement, uh, right. where Morocco had basically it relied on Morocco agreeing to accept the outcome of a referendum. Right, um, and that on that principle they were able to move forward. In 1999, King Hassan II died, the Moroccan king. Oh, yeah. That that was a big problem because he had sort of tacitly accepted that independent that, that a referendum would occur, and okay. his heir wasn't so keen, necessarily so keen. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So Baker came up with two different Baker plans. Uh, over the early 2000s. What a um, So he was working directly for Kofi Annan as a personal envoy to, to Western Sahara, taking kind of personal responsibility for bringing everyone to the table, making them talk, doing all the back-channel diplomacy. But neither of his plans gained acceptance. Basically, Baker Plan 1, it was proposed to replace the referendum with a vote on limited autonomy within Morocco for the Sahrawi people. That's not the same thing. Nope. <laughs> what? Uh, what? So Morocco would control the territory while the Sahrawis would have ex exclusive competence over local issues. So essentially being right. a colony. And yeah. uh, somewhat predictably, this plan was uh, accepted by Morocco and rejected by <laughs> the Polisario Front. What a dummy. So Baker Plan 2, called the Peace Plan, it provided for... Um, a transitional period where the Polisario would, would administer uh, Western Sahara and there'd be a four to five year period before a referendum which would give the choices of independence, autonomy within Morocco or complete integration with Morocco. And this plan was accepted by the Polisario Front, so a big concession on their part. 
uh, Algeria and the UN Security Council also backed it, but it was rejected by Morocco. Okay. Because even though it allowed Moroccan settlers to vote this time, so that was a yeah. sort of a, a compromise to them, it would require that they'd have to accept the possibility of independence. So as it stands now, Morocco is basically just flat, flat, flatly refusing to have any referendum on the table where independence is an option anymore. Right. Which was the whole premise of the ceasefire. Just a couple of things to mention in terms of like the shifts in the time. Like we, we talked about how the demographics of the territory uh, mm. have changed over time. So, you know, potentially at the start, yes, a, a referendum would have had a clear positive result for the Potentially not now. Potentially, yeah, it would be more, more in question. Another thing that's worth mentioning is that in, you know, uh, 1979, the Polisario Front were a lean, mean fight machine with uh, you know mm-hmm. new uh, materials, uh, aid from various groups, Cuba, etc. Um, in 2018, uh, I don't know if you guys saw this. There's a, a Vice documentary on, on YouTube mm, where somebody goes yeah. to the SADR Definitely and kind of hangs out. out with the, the Polisario troops and stuff. Yeah, we'll link that in the show notes. But it, it doesn't seem like they're super well resourced. I mean, and you, you can't really imagine nope. where they would be getting resources from, you know, even if they, they were. A lot of their stuff is kind of old... 70s tanks and 70s including materials. their military oh no, that's specifically what i'm talking about that their military like their people oh yeah yeah the sa- same old old fellas from back then they still, still have you know young able-bodied men but in terms yes, of the but equipment they, they haven't have, seen action in 27 exactly years. They, they've been they they do have pretty amazing um i wouldn't quite call them fortifications more so i guess uh, uh kind of foxholes and and the like Mm-hmm. And there's some some amazing footage of people like in little tunnels underneath the desert, um, at one point even eating the dirt, to sh- like the 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 soil to show that both their love for the soil and also their ability to subsist on basically nothing. Wow. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't doubt their commitment. It's more just how well resourced they would be at this stage. But I mean, the, the flip side is then Morocco also doesn't want to have a shooting war in you know what what they regard as southern morocco because morocco is uh, seen as a fairly modern country in most regards and a yep. tourist yep. destination and all that stuff would come into question if um if people were shooting at each other uh, they wouldn't be best pleased we also have to consider algeria so algeria polisario's chief sponsor yep. and they've been ambivalent about these plans so sometimes they're in favor of them sometimes they're against yeah. them they have a complex relationship with the US and France yeah. in terms of funding and uh, globalizing their economy. And as they modernize, some people in Algeria just kind of want the problem to go away. Yeah. Uh, so while they were quite passionate about their their sort of uh, competition with Morocco initially yeah. Yeah. to become a regional top dog, now the interest is more um, perhaps in, in regularizing everything and being able to move forward as a modern economy and having kind of an exiled state in your southwestern corner is a bit awkward so that's that's a problem in terms of real politic and as as you kind of hinted at mark there's there's frustration in the in the refugee camps where arguably half of the sarawi population live you know the men go to spain in their thousands to work and send home money. Yeah. Commerce is developing in the camps as they become, you know, permanent settlements over 40 years. Uh, but so is crime, you yeah. know, uh, because those two aren't that dissimilar. 
the end of the day. Um, Exiles be normalised, the veterans are too old to fight, the youngsters are untrained, and Algeria wouldn't support a return to violence if they wanted yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. And Morocco is richer and more powerful. And, and has modern has modern armour. So yeah. They, they have been keeping up. I mean, they have this enormous berm and you know, hun, hun, over 100,000 troops, uh, all with modern equipment, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et so. It, 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 it is noteworthy that as African national liberation movements go, Polisario hasn't really been challenged internally as the valid representative of the nation. You know, there hasn't been a, a need to a sort of disappear opponents. Oh. And, uh, you know, they've managed to keep radical Islam out of the equation. Yeah. Yeah. Which, again, has been an issue in other African countries. But, but it is becoming more difficult as diplomacy seems to be failing to resolve the situation the appeal of uh of radical islam is hard to deny to kind of young angry fighting age men and there's also the issue that i mean uh, this is a an issue that all countries in in north africa have to deal with uh even mm-hmm. even when they're well resourced is that it's very difficult to govern large arbitrary porous borders uh, with regards mm-hmm. uh, smuggling, you mentioned you know Islamic extremism as well. All all of that kind of is is feeding off of the loose administrations, and the SADR yeah. is, is not well resourced, and are still trying to kind of hold that together. No. But um, in that Vice documentary, they, they talk quite a lot about how they're but they're both struggling to kind of keep the young men in line, uh, keeping them away from you know Islamic extremism or kind of a return to violence. But also just smuggling in general, it's 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 like a wild land, so it, it's very hard yeah, for them. But to, they to have believe. to do something, you know. People have to do something for an income, for a livelihood, yeah. and sitting in a refugee camp all your life isn't isn't that appealing. Um, you 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 asked Nick a bit about his time visiting the camps. Yeah, it was it was super interesting. And he, he was showing yeah. how like cosmopolitan and how how worldly they actually were, which. I mean, it doesn't mm-hmm. really line up with your initial image of, uh, you know, refugee camp in the desert. Because he was talking about, you know, no. walking along and somebody invited him in for tea, which everyone does because they're all super, super generous and super welcoming. And uh, the guy's like, oh, yeah, oh, you're doing a bit of archaeology. Yeah, sounds good. My, my uh, daughter's just back from university in Spain there. And he's like, what? What are you talking about? But you're in a tent in the desert. But, wow. but it's, it's really quite common a lot for a lot of um, a lot of yeah. uh, Sahrawi uh, youngsters to go to Spain, yeah. Cuba, etc. for for education. So as a group, they're actually very well educated, quite cosmopolitan. Yeah, um, yeah they're 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 no they're no. So see, here here is Nick giving his his first hand experiences of the uh, camps in Algeria. So these are essentially large towns uh, now, yeah. and you know I've I've been to towns in places like Mauritania where the conditions are sort of uh, not not as impressive as they are in the refugee camps. Um, so yeah, conditions are sparse, um, but you know it's not it's not maybe as desperate as um, you might assume being a refugee population. But I don't want to you know sort of belittle the situation there. Yeah, exactly. Um, there are certainly problems with uh, nutrition, with food access, um, with you know access to the type of things that you and I would take for granted. Um, uh, they certainly depend an awful lot on aid, not just from Algeria but also from the EU, uh, from yeah. the likes of the World Food Programme, and so on. But they're very well educated. Uh, one of the um, 
things that you see is is that you know Polisario have taken education very seriously, and you know, some people refer. I have no uh, scientific data to back this up, but they're often referred to as one of the best educated populations in Africa. So in terms of the condition, I mean, I've stayed in the refugee camps on a number of occasions. Um, like I said, they're, they're basic. Um, you know, as a, a foreign visitor, you are pretty privileged. You will stay somewhere that's uh, probably not at the lower end of the uh, you know quality of life index, as it were. So how representative that is is, is debatable. But you do get a sense of, of how the camps are. A good friend of mine, a Sahrawi friend, who was basically our field coordinator. <laughs> Interesting, when I was sitting in his... Uh, well, what he and a lot of the other refugees have, they have um, sort of a mud brick building and they have a tent and they sort of shuttle between one and the other depending on what the weather's like. And uh, okay. when it's very hot, they tend to, I think, be in the, in the mud brick dwelling, which is cooler. Uh, when it's cooler, they might use the tent and so on. Um, right. But we were sit sitting in his tent in his home in um, Smara camp, which is the biggest camp. And uh, he'd actually, he's pretty well traveled. He spent four years in Leeds, uh, of all places. Of course. And uh, <laughs> we were sitting there... Um, talking about the UK, and he said, I don't miss the UK. He said, you know, I'd, I'd rather be here. <laughs> so so I guess take, make of that what you will. I mean, but, uh, but so for him, you know, I, I guess he, he was certainly not one of the worst off people in the camps um, by, by a long way. To him, that was his home. He was, you know, uh, you know somebody who lived in the desert, was born in the desert to nomad parents. Um, and, uh, you know, he wanted to be in that environment with his people. So there is a sort of, I guess, a sense of, of sort of, you know, uh, identity, uh, of solidarity, and um, a sense that, to a certain extent, not, not this particular bit of the desert, which is a pretty horrible bit of, of Algeria when you look at the landscape, um, pretty Spartan. That's not where they want to be. They want to be back in Western Sahara, but they want to be, um, they, they don't want to all go and live in Spain or... or uh, you know, migrate somewhere else and disperse and solve the problem as the Moroccans would like them to. So just moving forward, um, James Baker resigned in 2004 in frustration at the kind of stalemate, right. uh, which Thanks, is reasonable. He'd been, Makes sense. he'd been there most of a decade. Yeah. Since 2004, there's a list of voters sitting in, in an office in Geneva somewhere waiting to be used in a referendum. So that work has been completed of identifying which tribes had voting rights and everyone more or less agrees on the list. It just, uh, well, someone has to let the referendum I mean, Also, happen. now the list is 13 years old. So as much as you might have agreed on yep. it, that just only brings it into further potential of, of, of dispute. Indeed. Um, the war on terror changed the complexion of the conversation as right. well. So where the US had had some support for maybe a two-state solution, uh, after the Casablanca bombing by radicalized uh, Islamic extremists in, in Morocco, mm -hmm. Morocco became an ally in the war on oh, terror with George W. Bush's uh, administration. And obviously Western Sahara became less of a priority then yeah. because they were now allies. Um, in 05... King Mohammed VI started domestic dialogue on autonomy in the Saharan provinces. And he, he has this advisory council on Saharan affairs that gives some degree of legitimacy to, to these discussions. So sort of in terms of uh, letting those Sahrawi who are happy to live in Morocco say that. But there's been a series of uh, intifadas, as, as it mm. were. In, in most recent, 
big one I think was in El Ayun when um, in 2005 when when uh, there was basically up- uprisings and, and demonstrations against treatment of political prisoners and protests protesters being arrested and so on and something horrifying that I came across was that Morocco sees itself somewhat as, as the, the border of the EU and its job is to stop people coming th- from sub-Saharan Africa into Spain and something it started doing with people they catch is just dumping them in the free zone right in the desert I, I have read about this yeah where they're then taken in by, by the Sahrawi people and um, usually eventually find their way back to where they came from through the help of charities and so on but it's it just seems a horrendous use of desert I, I read that they they received immigrants from Gambia Cameroon Nigeria Ghana and a group of 48 from Bangladesh at one point who were just like well, dumped how did they out. get there well I mean I have no idea actually <laughs> but possibly maybe from a transport ship or something like that maybe they just Dumped, jumped off but yeah, coming up to now, the the long term leader of, of the Polisario Front, but Mohammed Abdelaziz Ezzedine, died uh, a few years ago, and he's been replaced by Brahim Ghali, who was also a founding member yeah, was founder as well, of the yeah. SADR and former ambassador to Algeria. So he's sees a military leader, but again from the same generation yeah. of a long time and ago. In recent years, there's also been a bit of trouble along the the coast. That little sliver of coast that the the Polisario Front control is also an important border crossing for Moroccan Mauritanian trade, and Polisario have been sort of trying to control that right. and limit transit through it, and that's led to a lot of trouble and a lot of UN reports over the past couple of years. But we're kind of that's kind of where we are at a stalemate. There were some uh, some other details from that Vice documentary that I thought were were worth worth mentioning. One was just a chant that I I, I saw at a protest that, that they filmed, which was uh, against the, the the Moroccan administration. We all we all stand united against the wall. Who is he? Who is he? The hell with the so called king. I, I rather like that. Um, and this is in the uh, you know occupied Western Sahara uh, essentially. Uh, and there was also uh, accounts of really awful stuff that was happening to people who were um, seen as separatists or who were you know, in any way like agitating for self-determination. But very much this is an unsettled question and it should be and, one way or the but, other. But also it's very hard to see how it'll change. How? You know, the, the only, like, you can only actually see it getting worse with that trend yep. of you know, young men potentially you know, getting recruited into Islamic extremism. Uh, and then, you know, the whole thing gets a lot more violent and shooty. Morocco decide they're within their rights to kind of try to pacify the region, are supported because, you know, yep. we all hate terrorism. So, okay. Uh, and, and then you and, just get ethnic cleansing happening, which nobody wants. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, the Polisario can't give up on, like, their whole purpose for existing is independence. Yeah. I think that they used to use a phrase, uh, martyrdom or independence which is problematic. Nick also pointed now. out, uh, and he had a, uh, I think he had a separate page around this. Yeah, also, he has a hate mail section on his website. He, he, he nice. does. <laughs> Quite convenient, very thoughtful. Uh, but uh, the other thing was that um, the uh, Minerso website took down the map of the kind of proposed um, demarcations around kind of the, the agreed referendum-based borders. 
um, mm. as they were. And that was seen as kind of a, well, why are you doing that? Why, why are you removing information around what you have, you know, previously agreed? Um, yeah. So there, there is also, I guess, you know, as you'd imagine, there's maybe concern about the UN's willingness to continue providing this Minerso force to maintain observation and maintain the, the ceasefire and so for, on. For a referendum that may never that, that happen. Yeah, that ain't common. Uh, because they can't, like the UN doesn't have the power to force countries no, to do anything. No. That's something people always forget. They think the UN is this, this you know, all-powerful no. institution. It's only as powerful as the members yeah, allow I mean, it to we, be. We, we've said that the UN came to this this conclusion in 1975, and yet we still have, you know, a, a stalemate here. Yep. So, yeah. It's got a lot of soft power, but only as much as, as the world is willing to... That, that, that's it. I mean, the UN sets the terms of the mission. They, they can send troops in. The UN does have its own fighting force, which is yes, quite different to the United Nations. Always, they're always peacekeepers. D- generally. I mean, the Korean War, I believe, was actually the UN. So I don't know. Really? As far as I understand, it was under the, the moniker of the UN. Um, and they're, they are allowed to shoot. But it, it's, it depends on how the terms of the mission are set, as I understand it. Yeah. So generally, it's peacekeepers. In this case, it's not even quite peacekeepers. It's more so observation and just you know mm-hmm. monitoring but yeah just the terms of this mission will never allow them to kind of well the un's gonna roll up its sleeves and sort it out nope they're not allowed not a ha- not, a, not an option yeah and the un can't hold a referendum also true morocco has to hold a referendum yeah i, I have a i have a or map here it. which I, th- I think will be interesting one I'll, I'll include a link to it in the show notes but it's like a, a map uh with color-coded where different nations stand on the status of western sahara oh yeah i don't mm. know if you guys yeah, saw yeah. this Ever changing. Most of the recognitions from yeah, Africa. Mo- most, like on this map that I'm looking at, green is recognition of the SADR and and you know maintains relations. Like that's that's pretty much, you know, the only version of that. There are a couple of I different Sweden options uh, in terms of non-support or non-recognition, but green is the only one that right. you know where where there's official recognition and pretty much all of it is in um is in Africa. There's a couple of like Morocco's there's favorite. I think North Korea oh, here sorry, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, a couple of South American countries yeah. but yeah but no nowhere in in um in Western Europe uh from this map at least is mm. is is recognizing the SADR right now or has official yeah it's not official anymore. relations with them. And, and there's an interesting thing happened where where um Morocco left the African Union about 35 years ago oh, yes. because Western yeah, Sahara yeah. was admitted or SA, the SADR was admitted mm-hmm. as a member yeah. and they rejoined in 2017 yeah. uh, basically everyone agreed to not push okay. the issue Yeah, which again says that some of the strongest supporters of Western Saharan independence still have to move with the times move mm-hmm. with the real politic of Morocco being an important member of any African international Union, mm. yeah. So I mean, it's it's not exactly a, a fun ending here. I mean, we we we've like we said, we've, we've yeah. basically got a stalemate, no, and it's dot, a dot, dot. and it's a Fair? question yeah, mark. and it's ellipsis on the end of this episode as well because it's not really resolved, and I don't know if it ever you know ever will be you know, but it certainly seems like nobody thinks yeah. it ever will be. Yeah, there's, there's just no we'll obvious route by which it can be solved, and no. there's maybe a few routes by which it could get much much worse. Um, but that, that's, absolutely. That's really it. So, so do we have anything to say about uh, you know have they won any gold medals in the Olympics or uh... they're not allowed in the Olympics yeah. as far as I know I mean they're, great so because they're not regarded recognized as a, as a country, as a country. Yeah. 
So just to wrap things up, I suppose, in terms of culture, um, Nick had a few things to say about about the importance of hospitality in Sahrawi culture, about how, you know, when you're out wandering in the desert, if, if you meet anyone, they will invite you into their home. And he surmised that basically that's a requirement for a desert culture, because if you don't, if that's not how everyone behaves, then yeah, there was actually now that you mention it, there was an interesting um, section about that in the book that I mentioned earlier, Skeletons on the Zahara, where um, mm. Captain Riley recounted that he was pretty amazed that these nomadic tribes, even even back then in 1815, would effectively share any food that they had, uh, no matter the divisions yes. between different tribes or even like the the squabbles that were happening between, like even within a single tribe. Uh, they they all would sit down, but survival is yeah, non negotiable. They would all sit down and eat together yeah. um, because that's the only way you can survive in the desert. You see it all through the Old Testament as well that that's just part of of desert yeah. culture. Hospitality is deep ingrained in in the culture of places that are are have yes. harsh climates because if you teach everyone to take care of the stranger, then you'll be the yeah. stranger someday. I, I'm sorry, guys, to chop and change a little bit, but on sports, I'm just reading about... So they, they weren't allowed into any of the FIFA events, but they were in the 2012 Viva World Cup, um, which is may, maybe what we were talking about, where, like it's, you know, nations that are not necessarily that well-recognized. But just listen to the lineup of, of nations that were involved. Iraqi Kurdistan, Northern Cyprus, Zanzibar, <laughs> Provence... In, in France. What? Occitania, also in France. Western Sahara. Tamil Elam from Sri Lanka. Rishia, which is essentially you know what we were talking about with regards um, uh, Liechtenstein, which is kind of a, an area of, of kind of Ger- Germany, Italy, Switzerland, kind of near. near oh, Rishia, yeah, okay. And and hmm. Darfur. There was n- those nine, and I think there right. were. I think it was in Iraqi Kurdistan is where it ha- was held. Wow. Competing for the Nelson Mandela Trophy. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is that is All right, not so. We'll, we'll definitely include a link yeah, to that in the, in the show notes. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, paste that in. All right. So if if that's it, is that uh, it? That's it, guys. We are, I think that's done. it. The bag is empty. That's the end of season three. Now, before we go, we have to say a very heartfelt thank you to the people that make this show possible. And that is our patrons. New backers who have signed up for extra bonus content and other rewards recently include superfans Alec Richman, Raul, Amari Dryden, Kiartan Berim, Andrew McDrury, Sam Thorpe, and Bradley Foster. Tis for your sandy, you lads. Mm-hmm. Thank you all so much for your extremely generous support. If you'd like to have a hand in creating episodes like this, then you can visit patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can simply follow the link in the show notes. Thanks also in this episode must go to Nick Brooks, who you've heard throughout the episode. Who is a flipping hero, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Nick. Thank you very much. His full interview with Mark, which was almost an hour long, is available to patrons in full on our Patreon page at no extra charge. Here he is one last time. We've uh, just at long last published um, 
all of the results of our, our research between 2002 and 2009 um, in a book imaginatively entitled The Archaeology of Western Sahara, comma, a synthesis of fieldwork from 2002. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> so if people are desperately fascinated, then they can um, find it on, on Amazon um, and uh, probably in some, but not all, good bookshops. It's pretty niche. But it'd be great if, if we had a few, <laughs> a few people purchasing that. That'd be lovely. Otherwise, I guess the best thing to do is probably just do a web search and just put in Western Sahara Project. Um, and we have well, a website which is in dire need of updating, hasn't been updated for a number of years. If they want to read uh, some of my rantings and ramblings about the uh, experiences of, of working in that sort of geopolitical context, then they can find the Sand and Dust blog. We can then search for that or at sandanddust.wordpress.com. Um, and if they find uh, you know, Western Sahara Project on Twitter, W Sahara Project, then they can always send me a tweet and I can point them at anything that they might be particularly interested in. For those of you who are constantly asking about our music, and we know there's a lot of you out there, it was produced by friend of the show, Thomas O'Boyle, who is a freelance composer and all-around great guy. Sound lad. You can find a link to his stuff in the Sound show notes lad. or on our website. And finally, you can find more episodes of this show wherever you find podcasts. However you found this one, in fact. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and you can also hear more from us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. On all those platforms, we're under 80 Days Podcast. Joe, where can people find more about you on the internet? They can check out uh, timetoburn.com. Burn is spelled B-Y-R-N-E, like my name, and uh, see things about chemistry and traveling and so on. And Mark? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, MarkBoyle86. That's, that's about all I have time for at the moment, to be honest. If even. You can find me on Twitter at the Luke J. Kelly or at my website, LukeJKelly.com. Thank you very much for listening to Season 3 of the podcast. We will see you guys next time. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. Slama. Slama.